0: Casting from the woodpecker's studio in the great state of new hampshire welcome to the sounds like a search and rescue podcast where we discuss all things related to hiking and search and rescue in the white mountains of new hampshire here are your hosts mike and stomp so episode 43 stomp welcome
1: welcome to the the podcast the slasher podcast
2: welcome back good to see you mike yes
1: welcome back yeah, yeah. So um, I had a question for you about search and rescue. Okay. Shoot. Ambulance chasing. So okay. you guys, have, you, have either one of you guys ever run into a scenario where, so it doesn't happen that often because like I don't really recall too many situations where like a search and rescue was like publicized as it was going on, but it, there's been a few times, but have you guys ever dealt with like ambulance changers, chasers where people just show up when you're on a rescue where they're like, we're here to help.
3: Oh, you mean more in the sense of when I heard the word ambulance chaser, I was, I was thinking more like a lawyer looking legal. for a case, like legal. Right. Yeah, but oh,
1: you're, yeah, you're thinking
3: true. more of like ad
1: hoc help or, or just. Yeah, uh, yeah, like people that just show up to sort of be, you know, they, something Something came out over social media or a word of mouth and people just showed up I, and they were I like, I the heard
2: this rescue, do you need help? Good, good Samaritan is more the term, I think.
1: Yeah,
3: or just unorganized volunteer. Which can sure happen in a, in a bigger case, like in a larger, more maybe multi-day event. But I've not seen it uh, in my experience.
2: No, I haven't either. No. And then it's actually yeah. welcome
3: on the trail. <laughs> so, you know, on the trail, that's just more help, you know, to assist with carrying someone. It's amazing that able-bodied people do walk by injured people. But it's been really interesting to see fish and game. Um, You know, ask people, hey, if if you don't mind, if you don't mind taking a second, you know, do you mind putting your hand on this litter for a few feet, you know, and then pass on by. And and, uh, that actually has helped on several carryouts that I've seen. And I I thought it was a a really good thing to do. You know, it got people involved. It got the person down the trail. And I think it it got the broader public to be aware and and also to to help out. But but no, as far as a legal sense or as far as just random people just coming to kind of um, onlook. No, not experienced that.
2: So what what brings up this topic?
1: Well, the reason I ask is there was a rescue, I think it was on Stowe, it was in Maine, and um, it was like a rare thing, because I almost never see this happen in New Hampshire. I, I can think of one case, well, I can think of two cases, one, Where obviously Odin the dog, like everybody, that was all over social media, like we need help because the search and rescue teams don't necessarily do a formal approach. But I guess what happened with this situation in Maine was there was two hikers coming down and I think it was Stowe, but don't quote me on that. And they, one of them was experiencing hypothermia and the word got out over social media. And I think search and rescue teams were mobilizing to help these two guys Hmm. and, um, I don't know if people showed up or not, but there was a post like the next day and it was basically like somebody, they were either on search and rescue or were aware of it. And they were basically like, if you hear about a search and rescue going on on social media, don't show up because we've got a team there that knows what they're doing and you're going to be a distraction. And I was sort of like, oh, that's an interesting topic to bring to, to Snop and Mark to see what they're um you know, what their thoughts would be on it. Because I, I can't think of any scenarios other than, I'm sure you guys, if you need an extra hand and people happen to be on trail, like Mark said, like you'll obviously take the extra help.
2: Yeah. Well, I know that early back in the the beginning days of uh, Pemi Search and Rescue, for instance, they were fielding a lot of public help during that search for that young boy up at uh, Clearbrook. Or, yeah, Clearbrook. So I know that was an issue back before the volunteer teams, uh, came into existence. So it may have been more of a problem back then, perhaps less now, but that's a great question about what role social media is having with that. Um, that, yeah. And that does bring, now that Jamie brings
3: it to mind, it was relayed to me before my time. I did not live up here then, but I did hear of a case that may have been the same one, but, uh, there were hundreds and hundreds of people that came up from New York City looking to assist in a search, and the challenge then becomes, like any like any logistical organizational challenge, is managing the resources. And if these people are untrained and they're they're just you know they're they're willing and they're and they're able, but they're just you know if if you just have a mass of people, it gets really hard to organize them and give them sectors and you you have to basically find qualified people and break them all down and kind of make them into sub teams and things like that. So I guess Mm -hmm. there is a point at which, you know, unrequested help could become more of a a hindrance than a help. It's hard because help is always wanted, but, uh, you know, you you want people that are not going to need rescue themselves. You want people that are cognizant and aware and is particularly in a search. A carry out is a much simpler thing, but a search is complex and, you know, you have a responsibility not just to the to the victim, but to to rescuers also.
1: So I, I could see that becoming an issue um, yeah, in that yeah, case. That makes sense. And I think in general, like you would want to avoid ever putting anything sort of that's ongoing out on social media. I think your first avenue would always be to call the authorities before putting stuff on social media. I know that there was one rescue up on the ridge where a guy, I guess, the only way he could get through was. Through social media. So he did post a, a sort of an SOS from there. But that's the only scenario I've ever recalled seeing over social media. So interesting. But I, I just figured I'd bring this to you guys. That's an interesting point. I think that could come out a little bit later too,
3: because uh, the, the mechanism that, that you get a notification out on is, is really whatever's available. So, um, and you know, if there's a preferred method or not. Um, I can jump ahead. Just jumping ahead very briefly, we we're going to talk a little bit about you know kind of just how military search and rescue and personal recovery is conducted. And and um, you know one of the tenets there is you, you rec- every unit is obligated to recover its own people. Mm-hmm. And you know so if if someone is in a party and and if they've got contact with other people or if they have family members or friends nearby and if they want to alert them on social media, this could prevent and preclude using assets from you know, other higher level agencies. And in, in other words, like I wouldn't necessarily tell somebody not to, I mean, you could text, you could call, you could do whatever, but whatever platform is working for you. If, mm-hmm. In other words, if someone can get the word out and someone they know could come and help them, you know, this could preclude needing a rescue by a volunteer organization. I mean, we really augment fishing game here in New Hampshire. So, it would, you know, it would go through 911 to fish and game and then volunteers may or may not get activated. But, you know, if someone could call a friend or text a friend or, you know, whatever tweet a friend I I wouldn't necessarily tell them not to do that
1: yeah I mean no doubt about it like every time I go hiking especially when I'm solo like my plan A is to text stomp if I get in trouble (laughs) 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 and tell them to keep it quiet immediately right but Stomp uh, so yeah, we'll talk about this in a little bit more detail and just for the audience's sake this is our friend Mark who's 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 sharing some info so we'll introduce him in a little while but um, Stomp do you want to I got a couple of notes here so do you want to talk about your new side gig here because it does sort of tie into at least winter search and rescue stuff or yeah sure snowmobile I, um, stuff So
2: I am working as a snowmobile guide for um, Northern Extreme Snowmobile up at Bretton Woods so uh, it's a new gig and I've been sitting, <laughs> I sound a little raspy because I'm like shriveled to a prune because i have just dehydrated, being out in the cold for 50 hours plus, you know, it's like, <laughs> but it's been great. So yeah, it's my my new part-time adventure and it's been fantastic.
1: Yeah. So, so how's your cool. ass feeling? Have you broken your ass in yet? Well, is a
2: snowmobile like cycling? Uh, you know, I, I think I can draw a parallel with a horse for sure. <laughs> Every snowmobile is quirky and some are rambunctious and you know, they all have their own feel about them and this and that, but I'm standing a lot of the time, you know, it's, it's really cool you don't, I have not had a problem with my ass. It's been my lips, my, my, my shriveled skin, cause I'm trying to stay ahead on the water game, but it's just been a challenge. Cold, it's just damn cold out there right now, you know. Cool. Yeah, do they have? Um, do those
1: again? I, I, my extent of my snowmobile knowledge is like I went 20 years ago and the guys I went with crashed their snowmobiles, of course, oh, sure, like it were just idiots. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but don't they have like I've read I've read some things and I've heard, had some friends. I mean, my friend Tom went to Yellowstone and I think he was telling me don't they have like heated like he-
2: handlebars on these heated handlebars now? heated throttle uh, lever um, the rider if you're on a dual sled has handlebars as well or handles to hold on to that are heated. Um, these machines are amazing, absolutely yeah. amazing. So,
1: and as a guide, so basically you get assigned like
2: a crew of people. Yep. And it's, what is it called? Northern Extreme? Yes. Yeah. Mount Washington and, Snowmobile. Got it. And they're out of Bretton Woods? Yeah. They're right next door to uh, Fabian's, right where the Cog Road starts. God. All right. So then you get assigned like what, a group of like four or five people? Dude, you have no idea. It, it could be a one hour tour up to five hour tour. And it could be okay. one private person up to like 25 it's just outrageous. Really. It's amazing and, you, and they
1: have to listen to you. Like what have you had any disciplinary actions yet that you've had <laughs> to deal with with these narcotics? Well,
2: yeah, they're really really strict about uh, intoxication if they if There's they no smell drinking. anything, see anything. Um, there are situations where, you know, if we see somebody vaping in their car later. Got it. Um, Nothing. You, okay. And you know, to be honest with you, I get it. It's this is not the activity you want to be intoxicated for. It is inherently dangerous and you're really going to get messed up if you uh, take away from your uh, reflex action, your awareness, whatever it may be. So totally get it. Yeah, no, no, it makes sense, and I know we're going to talk about this later. But like, people think that like, and we
1: always say this, like, oh, winter's the slow season. But for fishing game, it's not the slow season because they're dealing with people like falling in ice, and they're dealing with snowmobile accidents all winter. So, and there's a whole list of them. There's probably been more than half a dozen that have come through in the last like two weeks. So, well, it gets
2: this is this is sort of the big opening weekend because there are trail associations that close the trails and say, okay, you guys can open and, and get to business. So they had to wait till I think it's like eighty inches of snow before they can open the trails so this right. was the big weekend and you're right there was at least half a dozen um crashes and with injury jesus
3: the and f- so the modern you're machines taking, are wicked fast yeah. they're oh,
2: yeah.
1: crazy fast absolutely they rip absolutely yeah. and rip. then and then you're taking like whatever, a crew of five people and they're, they're so you, you're basically telling them like follow the leader so you can kind of keep their speed under control. And then you must have like rules around, like they got to be separated for a certain distance and they have to understand that like these things don't just stop like a car and yeah. blah, blah, blah. Right.
2: Yeah. We, we get them dressed. Most of these folks come in. I mean, from what I've seen, most come in 50, eh, 50 ill-prepared cotton, you know, poor boots like those, uh. I don't know, those rubber boots that people might wear, duck boots, uninsulated, mm-hmm. that type of thing. So we we give them the helmets, we get them dressed, we take them out to the sleds, and we give them a run-through on how they operate, like you mentioned, and then we run through the uh, New Hampshire uh, regulations. So, I mean, a couple of the regulations right off bat, it's it's two-lane traffic or two-way traffic, so you have to stay in the right lane. There's never any passing um, for our clients, Speed limit's 45, um, we stop at all road crossings. Um, there were hand signals that we use. like we'll tap, tap, I'll tap on my head, my helmet, asking, are you okay? And everybody responds mm-hmm. back with the old head tap. I, I think they, they got that from Swiftwater, right, Mark, or, or Water Rescue? I don't know. Okay, yeah. interesting. Or like, uh, you know, I'll put my right arm up at a, uh, my shoulder's at 90 degrees, elbow bent 90, and that's, we're coming to a stop. So there's all these hand signals. Yeah, I'm kind of used to that. Like when I used to do, I haven't cycled in a
1: while, but like we would do group rides on like Saturday mornings, and there was all kinds of hand signals for cycling. So it's probably going to be similar.
2: Yeah,
3: I thought they were getting away from hand signals with the snowmobiles because you really need two hands on the on the bar to control it properly, especially with a novice rider.
2: You're absolutely right. From my understanding, fishing game said ixnay on the hand signals, but as a guide. I'm in the lead. I have to signal everybody behind me. So what I do, if I put my arm up in that position, the football half football goalpost position, people behind me don't mimic that to the people behind them. They will goose their brake a couple times lightly, so that their rear uh, rear view light, uh, the brake light goes on a couple times, so it informs people behind them. So it's pretty clever. But you're right. Yeah, no more hand signals. And do you?
1: do you give like people a rundown about like, okay, you're not wearing enough clothes. You're going to be screwed. Or do you just sort of just let them go with what they go with? And and if they complain, you bring them back early.
2: Well, it's, it's very, here's the crossover with search and rescue. I mean, as a guide, generally we're, they're they're not going out the door until they're ready. And if we come into subsequent issues, like, you know, Oh, my hands are cold. We're prepared for that as a guide. So it's very much like, Search and rescue, where we go up to somebody, and we have all that stuff. It's in the reverse; like we're starting out with these people. In the other end at search and rescue, we're starting with somebody up at three thousand feet and starting the process, and then going backwards. So very interesting. I've had a couple interesting things, like kids with cold feet, cold hands. are that's a huge one, cold neck. I mean, we we encourage people to bring the balaclavas, and I have all that stuff in my pack. I have extra gloves, you know, mittens, hand warmers. You name it.
1: Interesting. So this is cool. And and, I, yeah, and I'll yeah, i be honest with you. I have like a generally a negative impression of snowmobiles just because most of my interactions up north, like we have the place up in Maine, and I, and I see a lot of snowmobiles, and it's usually just people that are just going way too fast. They're wearing like the hooded sweatshirts and not appropriate clothing for the conditions, and it just seems like a bunch of reckless people. But I do like the idea of going with a guide and sort of, taking away all of that thinking about like, especially 90% of the people up there are probably not experienced and, and they're sort of going up there one or two times a year. So I would think that, you know, going with a guide at least sort of limits the risk a little bit.
2: I would think so.
3: Yeah. And you're, you're with a group and someone knows where you're going. I mean, you've mitigated a lot of the things that are going to cause someone problems. Just, you know, again, going back to kind of like you know, search and rescue, you know, mm. people knowing your plan, people knowing where to begin looking, people knowing when you're overdue, you've prevented all of this because, you know, you're with an outfit, you you know, they know a party's gone out, they know that there's a leader in the outfit. I, yeah. I assume as much as you possible, you have some communication with a, with a rear element or support element or something like that. It, but, cell phone service is spotty, as we know. Because we're in New Hampshire. But Yeah, but... But at the very least, someone knows to expect you back. Sure. And,
2: and you're in a group. And and the way they work it here at this at this outfit, if it's a group over six sleds, then it's automatically uh, you automatically have what they call a tail gunner. So you have another a, guide a that's in, in the, the back. Trail. Yeah. So if there's if there's say like four or five people that are really having a hard time managing the sled or going too slow, we'll hook them up with the tail gunner and they'll take over. It'll split the tour in half so that the faster people can take off with the lead guide that started out with. Um, and on, on top of that, if people go out on rentals, if they, this is an interesting thing, people can just rent them out right and go and hey, here's your map. Have fun. Yeah. Yeah. Those are the ones that seem like
1: that's where they get in a lot of trouble is like, you know, rent this, you know, 80 mile an hour machine and go out and do what the hell you want. And those are the ones that seem like they're getting driving off the road
2: and getting in trouble. Could be, but I mean, I can only speak for this place. They don't rent to inexperienced people and okay. they will not let them take. Well, let's say there's two sleds on a tour. One has to be uh, a double just in case one breaks down, so that they have something to uh, go back on. I will. So they, oh, sorry. Though that's okay. They try to mitigate it. They, you know, as best they can.
3: And and I will, I'd just like to throw in like um the the snowmobile is a different kind of machine, and I I could appreciate um yeah there, there are some impacts from its use, and they you know the two strokes tend to be pretty noisy, and there are there can be You know, just like anything else, there can be riders who are a little excessive. But I must say that New Hampshire or and Maine—I mean, anywhere you are in the winter—it's it's it's a device that can get you that places where nothing else can, and you can see views (laughs) because there's no vegetation. You can see views, and these are like you might be on the same mountaintop in the summer, and you you just get phenomenal lines of sight, and you Mm. just get to see and appreciate the terrain in a way that you never would otherwise. I mean, unless you were maybe you know honest on a on a, a, a cross country ski or on a snowshoe or or hiking up yourself post holing up to the top but the the like just even small hikes like stinson mountain like go over three ponds or something like that yeah. you go over three ponds in the winter on a snowmobile and and that view is just phenomenal <laughs> it, and in the summertime you never get that line of sight And so even modest little hills that that you wouldn't even think of, you know, because we're in all these 4,000 footers Yeah, and there's Mount Washington at 6,000 feet. But you can go on on a 1,700 foot hill five miles from here and see a view that'll just take your breath away. And, And on a snow machine, it's possible to do it in a few minutes. And, you know, if you're debilitated, if you're, you know, if your legs or hips or back don't support you hiking up there. It is a, an amazing way to get out and enjoy winter, and and so mm. I just wanted to put that out there because yeah, I mean I've I've seen it and and you know I've been blown off the trail by people too, and and it's not that, that's not fun, no. but I just wanted to point out that there there's some things that can be seen on a snowmobile in the winter that that are really that it's almost the only thing that could get you there.
2: Yeah, and I yeah. want to add on to that. It's like coming from the perspective of a long term hiker, I'm blown away by the network of snowmobile trails it is absolutely mind-blowing where it takes you and what you can see and it's stick season so you get like for instance we're we're working in jefferson notch essentially at this point um we do five-hour tours all the way up to gorm and berlin and stuff like that but the other day we did a three-hour tour that's basically went up to caps ridge uh, over to randolph and then up to wombeck and then back it's just mind-blowing Uh, and you see all these these remote ponds that you'd never get to otherwise it's just awesome Super cool. Yeah, I mean,
1: <laughs> I would pay big money just to get driven up to the the Cap Ri- Caps Ridge like trailhead without having to right. walk
2: up there, <laughs>
1: Then just drop me off on your tour, and then I'll do I'll do the hike and then come back down. Yeah, it's so, mind blowing. It's so great. But I can only imagine. Like I think about like Nash Stream Road would be cool to take a snowmobile and like do Percy
2: Peaks. Yeah. Or
1: also like Success Pond Road and getting out to like that back end of um, the Mahuziks in that area there too would be awesome.
2: Yeah, and I think our you know as a podcast. It's sort of a shame that we've neglected this. It's sort of in our legal documents, like where all things search and rescue, and snowmobiles are a big part of it, and I think we should cover it here and there a little more than we do, because it's pretty fascinating.
3: I've done yeah, a snowmobile rescue uh, for the fire department. Oh. But, uh, we had a wreck on uh, 155 right up there on, uh, in Ellsworth. Interesting. Right about a mile from Ellsworth Pond. Mm. And uh, at, at Campton here, we have a snowmobile, and it's got a sled and we went back and got the patient and uh, packaged her up. They had um, gotten into an S turn. Mm. The fellow had not ridden in about 20 or 30 years and got a brand new machine, you know, real high power machine. And he just accidentally goosed the throttle. His hand got pegged, you know, and, and uh, happens, they both yeah. got thrown off the device. And she had a period of unconsciousness and uh, she was bruised up pretty badly. They both went went over the bars and into the hillside. and wow. But, uh, we were able to package her up and get her out and uh, and again that was facilitated with a snowmobile because, you know, getting back on these trails, some of these trails are quite remote. So yeah. you know, if you're gonna get someone off of them, you're you're gonna have to go in on a four wheeler or a snowmobile some oh, some sure. device.
2: So that's a, that's a hell of an opening segment, huh? A hell of an opening, but I got one more thing. <laughs> oh, we're, we're just in the opening. <laughs> Sorry, I got lost. We're just in the opening, we're Mark. Like, this is a
1: 20-minute opening. We haven't even got to the show summary yet. I mean not introduced you. Who is this guy?
0: I don't know who this Random guy is voice. talking. So, no, anyway, fantastic.
1: Um, but Stomp so one other thing and this is something that I struggle with is like I'm, I am go to a restaurant I'm no problem you've got good service I'm going to tip you 20-25% you go you know if, if you valet my car I sort of know what the deal is like how much to give Yeah. when I do like these like <laughs> snowmobile things or I do like I've done like um, jets jet ski tours in Bermuda and I've done like all these other tours like I don't know what the fuck to tip you guys like what do you like you need to get some money like what do you supposed to tip a guy that does a tour of a I snowmobile there's like
2: five people it, it, you can't get into it 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 really varies depending on the person that walks through the door i mean you're talking about i, I get the impression that because it's next door to Bretton woods and the omni yeah. that there's a perhaps a more affluent uh clientele perhaps but that's not always yeah. the case so it totally Good. varies the tips are all over the map um, listen anybody
1: listening right now if you do this snowmobile <laughs> tour and you got a guy named Stomp that's your tour guide, you better throw him some cash. <laughs> all right, don't be cheap. <laughs> tip these people. Yeah, we'll give you a plug on the uh, <laughs> yeah. podcast. Give you a plug. All right, well. All right, well, you can tell me <laughs> offline, but anyway, I just want to throw that out there. But but if you are doing a tour like this, like tip tip your whatever tour guide or your guide or whatever that is. Well, if they, if deserve, they it.
2: deserve it. I mean, if they deserve it, because I'm sure there are guides out there that don't give half an ass but uh thankfully i'm with a crew that's absolutely top-notch these guys are phenomenal um yeah although there is something to be said like i've done like
1: deep sea fishing and stuff like that and like the guys will just they'll just yell at you and be mean to you but it's like it's sort of like that's the aesthetic i kind of like i get it right that might be part of it can get away with that yeah Yeah, that's wicked funny all right um so you want to do sponsors and coffee talk
2: yeah, uh, Stacy Tardiff donated five and um, Audrey Elkinson donated five. Thank you very much. And uh, special thanks to our sponsor at Reckless Brewing. We all enjoy the best food, craft beer, and fun just 15 minutes from Franconia Notch, many 4,000 footers, and less than 10 minutes from the five corners.
1: All right. And then I am, I'm just pulling this up because I got two things. I found out giant, giant moon penis. And I also found out about um, someone.
2: Okay. Mark, this this goes back a ways, this giant moon penis thing.
1: Mark's like, what the hell are you guys talking <laughs> about here? <laughs> yeah, um, I'm
2: just in rapt attention. He's like, yeah, yeah. where's the exit of this place well, I'm yeah, in? He's
1: like, let me out of here. All right, so <laughs> Still in <the> <laughs> someone, I'm not going to give her full name, but Shandy, Um is the someone that donated the 10 coffees and was given a shit about not answering our emails. Although, I don't know what the deal is there. That's, that's not all. fault. So she was like, keep up the good work. So she she called it out. And then our friend Dylan, <laughs> um, he is the one that did the GMP on Instagram. So thank Dylan. you uh, for that. Uh, 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 I'll, I'll give okay, you the info. I'll give right, you the last name. Right. The, hey,
2: I he did uses not see a, this woman's uh, email. But I checked that email. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, but yeah, Dylan uses a... <laughs> He uses an alias like you do. So I'll oh, fill you in on okay.
1: who that is. So. Excellent. Anyway, but uh, yeah, so thank, thank you very much to everyone. And it's a new year, so we get new expenses for the podcast. So we appreciate it. And then as a reminder, if you could do uh, reviews on Apple Podcast, uh, that would be great. Give us five stars and then uh, write a review saying how great we are. If you get a problem and you don't want
2: to give us five stars, don't give us a review. Um, <laughs> anything else, Don? <laughs> I think that's good. Let's Get to the show summary. All right. All right. 26 minutes in. So tonight we're joined by Mark Rowland. Hi, Mark. Hi.
1: Hey, Mark. Mark is an active um, search and rescue team member in New Hampshire. Um, He's going to share some stories of his search and rescue experiences, and we'll talk about search and rescue from both a civilian and a military perspective. Uh, so we've typically only touched on civilian SAR teams, so I'm excited to hear about the military side of search and rescue. And then later on in the show, we will talk a little bit about trail building, um, and then we will plan to close the show out with a discussion um, on Joe Dodge. And uh, Joe is a person who holds a significant place in White Mountain history, so excited to learn about that. And then we'll close the show out with a little bit of info about snowmobile accidents. So we already talked a little bit about snowmobiles, so we'll talk a little bit more about some some incidents. That happened this weekend
2: uh so i'm mike and i'm stomp let's get started great great so uh any beer for you or any drink stomp i have a little black box cabernet sitting up there on the the uh, shelf but uh i've got the water right next to it the black box goes back to the first episode i think <laughs> if i remember correctly yeah, i think this so. is a, this is I know a tradition you, we have a a drink discussion, mm. and sometimes Steve will come in and talk about brews. And so oh, you've Beers. heard that one, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
3: Unfortunately, yeah. I have been abstaining from beer from since about November. It's not because I dislike beer, but it's just because I like all the high high gravity stuff. Yeah, and winter food tends to be, you know, has a lot of calories and everything. Anyway, so I, I figured <laughs> out if, if I take the beer out of the equation, everything works out. And if I leave beer in. Things happen, so yeah. and the other thing too is just being available for call outs and things like yep. that it, it cuts into that and I'm the it father does. of a two year old so you know just being being available and clear-headed has has raised itself in value absolutely you know, so yeah, unfortunately, I have nothing new to contribute for this part of the segment. <laughs>
1: Yeah, well, I think I can add to the trifecta here because I'm drinking water tonight because wow. I'm still dealing with I'm still dealing with the effects of COVID. Wow. Well, like what? What are you What are you feeling?
2: Uh, you can you? Smell? It's like
1: morphed into. I went running, so I try to get back. I run every day, but I I tried to go back to running, but I went on Saturday, and I stopped. When I stopped running, and I felt fine during the run, but I stopped, and then I started like sort of violently coughing, and I can feel like a bronchitis or a. Um, pneumonia type thing sort of creeping into the top of my lungs so I'm just like coughing at night and stuff and I had this incident like two years ago so I called the doc today and they're giving me some like an inhaler and some medicine so I'm just like not feeling the you know I I just have this sense that like if if I'm dealing with this I probably shouldn't be drinking beer Mm, sounds
3: fair how long ago did you get it if you don't mind me asking
1: I got COVID on January 9th, so we're recording this on the 24th, and really, like, the COVID was like, the two first days were kind of like, no big deal, and then I had three days of just sort of fever and chills and just not feeling great and sleeping a lot, and then I was fine after that, but I just haven't been able to sort of kick the congestion and the cough has just started to pick up, but Mm -hmm. I've had this this situation with with, uh, with pneumonia in the past. Uh, enough times that I sort of want to hit it early so I just figured I'll drink some water but definitely 100% don't recommend COVID stay away <laughs> noted <laughs> I,
3: I concur nice. <laughs> yes
1: <accurate>. I <laughs> so so we are all a bunch of losers so um, next topic here would be recent hikes so I have nothing to contribute from that because uh, matter of fact me and Stomp were talking about going on a hike this weekend but that, that
2: couldn't happen so um, did you get out at all Stomp? No, like I am just sitting on a sled going fifty miles an hour every single day for nine hours straight. But you are you are
3: out. I imagine you get to see some I mean you're up
2: on some ridges and things, right? I am, but you're just not hiking. It's certainly not hiking, but that's why that's why I try to stand up in a thing as long as possible. It's like woo. Have you been out hiking, Mark? I've not
3: hiked, but I did get out riding a snowboard for the first time since my boy came. Nice. So I did go out and got to do to enjoy cannon yesterday and I lived to tell the tale. And it was nice <laughs> to just get up and look across over the Franconia Ridge and oh, everything like that. Beautiful so, mountain.
1: Yep. How was the coverage on Cannon? Was it pretty good?
3: Yeah. Yeah it, was, yeah, it was really good. Um, yep. I forget what the official count was of how many trails were open, but, I mean, the, the whole mountain was virtually open. It was, it was, there were a lot of people there enjoying themselves, but there were definitely plenty of open runs and plenty of places to go. That, that mountain can fit a lot of people.
2: I drive by Avalanche every morning, and I look up at it, and it's as icy as it always is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like I, I, I keep ice.
1: hearing like um, on on the, across the news, like there's a lot of there's been a lot of complaints. I guess Aditash's general manager quit, and then there's been a lot of complaints about like lack of like snowmaking in Aditash, and then I think s- some issues with like crowds on Wildcat, and then I think the Veil um, Resorts owns like. I think Crotchet Mountain. They came in. Crotchet was known as like a. They did a lot of like overnight ski. I think they had like till three in the morning. They did midnight madness, and they've cut all that back. So I've been hearing a lot on the news about sort of the the resorts that are owned by Vail have been hmm. not great this year. But I think Cannon's owned like through a the separate state, contract with think it's state, the state, of state of New Hampshire, right? Hampshire, isn't it?
3: Or someone may run it, but I, I'm pretty sure. I mean, it's in the state park there. Yeah, it's a good yeah, question. So it's I don't interesting. know. Interesting. Yeah.
1: I mean, part of it's just like we haven't had a lot of snow cover, so maybe you can't blame the resorts. But I haven't never heard anything bad about Canada other than obviously it's icy, but it is yep. what it is.
3: Yep. But no new hikes for all me right. either. So uh,
1: all right, well, we'll get
2: out
3: one. Of I these promise days, the audience yeah. I'll get out sometime. I'm just waiting for people to need rescued. That's my avenue into the backcountry.
2: See, that's the way I roll. I tell Mike,
3: I stay well put together, you know, just for your emergency. Yeah, you know that's that's that's, my that's my
1: whole plan. So, (laughs) all right, everybody, shut off this podcast and go out there and get in trouble, (laughs) so these guys can stay busy (laughs) in the winter. So, all right, so segment one here, Jesus, we're um, we are how far into this here stomp it's awesome we're 33 minutes into our segment one
2: people love uh, so, long episodes and, and the last few have been sort of paltry on the time but good i, I, I thought the last few episodes are pretty good yeah, yeah they're all great <laughs> they're all fantastic
1: right <laughs> but uh so this segment one we're going to talk about um, military search and rescue and um we're going to get into this with
0: mark it's time for slashers guest of the week very cool very cool
2: I'm really glad that uh, you joined us tonight, Mark. Um, You know, I had the idea of this uh, the crossover with military search and rescue, just out of a personal curiosity, really. And um, maybe to draw some contrast between what you've experienced over the years and what we do up here in New Hampshire. But um, I came to know Mark, uh, let's see, maybe two years ago now. Full three now.
3: Yeah, full I'm three It'll be the fourth year this summer.
2: Yeah. Uh, Mark volunteered to do some search and rescue. And um, since then, I've come to know him a little bit better. He's uh geez, you're a pretty amazing guy. I mean, you're, you're can I, can I say the Y word that you're involved <laughs> the with? The Y word. It, rhymes, no, you can, with, you can it say, rhymes with yogurt. Oh, yeah. yeah you can earth. say whatever, whatever you want. Okay. So this guy. <laughs> <laughs> He's into yoga. He's, you're, are you still teaching? Yeah, one, one day a week in Lincoln. Amazing. Yep. That's so great. Um, he has quite a military background, which is extensive. But what caught my attention about you right off the bat was just your uh, ability to educate and to instruct. Mm-hmm. There was a period where you were contributing with, like, uh, training plans and things like that. And just the extent of your knowledge uh, was very impressive right off the bat. So I'm really psyched to talk about that. How did you end up in New Hampshire? Where are you from? I'm from State College,
3: Pennsylvania. Oh. Uh, Born and raised there. I ended up in New Hampshire out of—I fell in love, honestly— um. Although there is a clause in our With relationship, the state
1: or a, or somebody else
3: well, you know. Somebody. So it's funny you mentioned that, Mike, because there there's a clause in our relationship, and it goes something like this, and that is, I I love New Hampshire regardless of you, and it's not a negative. It's not, but it, it comes from the fact that I was I was hiking through the state. I was coming south on the Appalachian Trail, and uh-huh. um. It wasn't a full-through hike bid. It was just I started hiking in Maine, and I liked it, and it went well, so I just kept on going. And before you know it, I'm not in Maine. I'm in New Hampshire. And I came come down, and my now wife, Sandy, lives here in Campton, and she was a friend of a friend. So I zeroed the um, term, meaning you know, I took a day off, um, or, I, or I overnighted as I came down through the whites. I just would catch a ride to her house, And then, you know, stay over, and then I would hit another section and spend another five days out. And this was a miracle. This was something I did not know about. I hiked through the whites in the peak of summer and never hiked on a Saturday or Sunday just by accident of the way I had come down through the section. So I never saw the throngs of people up on the Franconia Ridge like (laughs) occur in in August, you know, I'm I'm in August and September coming down through here and just the timing worked out. But uh, of course I hiked down through and out through Vermont and eventually, you know, the hike outpaced, you know, my ability to stay at Sandy's. So I, uh, I came off the trail after Connecticut. I was just kind of ragged out and I wasn't, my fun meter was not pegged any longer, Mm -hmm. but Sandy's job keeps her up here. She works all over New England. And it was one of these things where if we were going to explore the relationship, I just decided, you know, we're just going to have to be together. So I packed up my car and I moved up here. And uh, Sandy... <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> ...was concerned about, you know, hey, well, what happens if it doesn't work out? And... I loved the Whites, my impression when I came through the Whites was clearly someone had failed me along the way in my education, that they didn't <laughs> let me know that this giant mountain range was right here. Right. But, yeah. uh, but I, you know, I like secluded areas, I like mountains, I like remote places, so I vibed with it immediately. But Sandy was concerned, you know, what happened if we don't work out? And I was like, look, you know I like it up here well enough you know that <laughs> I love New Hampshire regardless of you and so like that alleviated her anxiety about me moving up here and then like just getting you know left for for nothing mm-hmm. but um, that brought me up here and we've been together ever since, and we have a little boy named Ben, so clearly we got along but that's that's what brought me to New Hampshire but uh, yeah I, I fell in love with Sandy and I fell in love with the whites pretty much all at the same time
2: okay and before this, so you did you were trying to do the whole A t
3: it didn't begin as a, it wasn't a full through hike bid, although it, it could have gone that way. Yeah. I did the 100 miler, 100 mile wilderness in Maine.
2: Okay. And gotcha.
3: I, I was hiking with a CPAP machine at the time um, for sleeping at night and, mm-hmm. and it's a battery powered contraption and uh, charging up batteries and everything like that. That was the big, the long pole in the tent for me was the logistics of charging those batteries and also the extra weight. That was an extra six pounds of weight. Yeah. I mean, any real hiker probably just crapped themselves when I just said that. But because I mean, modern hiking doesn't even talk about anything in terms of pounds, but everything increased in my load proportional to that. You know, my bag had to be heavy enough and rugged enough to handle that machine and the batteries. And logistically, I had to do more zeros to charge the batteries up and stuff. So
2: interesting. So for what do you mind talking about the condition? Was
3: it? Yeah, just sleep apnea. Okay. Obstructive sleep apnea. Which is interesting.
2: You don't come across to me as the, the profile
1: no, there's a lot of it.
2: In yeah, he's saying
1: homework. you're not like I always think in terms of like big dudes. Like I can't really see you perfectly, but like you don't seem like a big guy. Um, so I always six, think of, two, like, 180. He's, um,
3: he's yeah.
2: thin as a rail.
3: <laughs> no, it, yeah. we're, um, there's there's a large cohort of us from my former line of work for military, military special operations, things like that. There's yeah. a large cohort of us that have it, and so they're not secondary. Well, they, and we're not we're not typical. You know, typical is you know older, male, obese, sedentary lifestyle. There, there is kind of a type that it doesn't mean there are other people that suffer from it, but they're, they're not sure if it has to do with the off-cycle stuff, like getting your circadian rhythm just completely jacked up or the yeah. stress hormones or whatever. But hmm. we do have a proportionally kind of large bubble of, of those of us who have been through these kinds of jobs that kind of present with it. And, pre- and early in life too, I mean, I've had it for 10 full, I've had my diagnosis for 10 full years now. Yeah. And so I mean, I was only thirty eight when this when all this started That's very interesting so, so
1: how how loud are those machines
3: uh you probably wouldn't know it if it turned on next to you it It, it can make oh. a little kind of whoopee cushion sound or like a squeaking noise like if the seal breaks on the mask or whatever yeah. but they're okay. they're Pretty whisper quiet I mean it, it, no
1: one's going to try to kick your ass in the shelter for for uh, turning the
3: machine <laughs> no, on I mean I, I I personally don't partake of shelters unless life yeah. require- you know like it's like life limb or eyesight, but like uh but no i mean i've i've you know I've slept in hostels I've slept in tents with people, I have slept in shelters with people i've I've been on a plane with them nobody's ever nobody's ever complained. The mice running okay. across your face are louder than the machine <laughs> that's, that's
2: true yeah so um so, essentially, you, you, to me, it appears that you're, you're into public service. So, we have, you know, <laughs> you're serving for Volunteer Search and Rescue. You're, you're now employed. Are you volunteering down at Campton for the EMS or? So, it's call department. Um, so, the structure is, I mean, you,
3: you are volunteering, but you're paid while you're on a call. Okay. So, I mean, it, it's technically, it's call department. Um, where I'm from, they have volunteer fire departments, but up here, the way the law is, basically, you know, they have to pay you. I, yeah. I think it has to do with workers' comp and coverage, similar to how when we're on a volunteer status on a search, we're, we're technically state employees,
2: even yeah. though we're volunteers. Like gotcha. For, but, so, uh, public service is in your blood. So, what drew you to the military, and when, when did that oh, all wow. come in? Let's dig back a little ways, Going and then back. we'll just jump towards more proximate yeah. stuff
3: it's funny you're lamenting not having long enough shows you're gonna regret having it. <laughs> you'll you'll have a long enough show um <laughs> no uh so i i went into the military straight out of high school um mm-hmm. at the time the gulf war was building up so i graduated high school in 91 okay. but i enlisted in the military actually october of my senior year so i knew i wanted to go and so um being a stick-your-toe-in-the-water kind of a kid, I I went with the Army because they had a short-term enlistment contract, you know, that let you kind of go try it out. And so my first thing was only two years plus training time. So it was like two and a half years. And, you know, because I, I was just like, well, I mean, I think I might like this, but I don't know. So mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and my first enlistment, I was a Cav Scout. And of course, Gulf War came and went before I even graduated high school. I mean, you know, that thing ramped up and happened, was over. Yeah. But... Uh, I, so I was a Cav Scout. I was stationed at Fort Drum, New York. And um, after my first term, I got out and I came back to State College, Pennsylvania, which is home of Penn State University main campus. Mm-hmm. I had what we would know now to say, like, readjustment, you know, challenges. Sure. And, and just growing up in a college town, it, it's hard. You know, there, there's mm-hmm. a lot of distractions. And uh, I just, I didn't, you know, I wasn't, uh, I come from a very wonderful place, but it's, I've never been my best self there. Mm-hmm. And uh, a few years later, after I was landscape laborer and stuff like that, but after a few years, I decided, uh, you know, I really liked the Army and I really appreciated it. I had been to Somalia, I'd been to Hurricane Andrew relief while mm-hmm. I was on active duty. And I was just like, I, it suited me and I seemed to suit it. So I went back in in 97. Okay. And then uh, I stayed in from 97. I retired in 2016 with 21 and a half years.
2: Wow. Okay. So, how, you must have seen a lot, but how did you get. Into the education side of it and the training side of it. Mm. Well, that uh, seems to be your main focus, right? Or um, you...
3: it's integral to the whole thing. You know, okay. every, everything in the military. You're 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 training with the people first. You know, if, you know, if you get trained in individual individual tasks. You know, they teach you the very basics, but then from there on in, you're a part of a team. But you not only train together, but you train each other. And then the minute you know something the very next thing they have you doing is turning around and teaching someone else because everything in the military is designed to run with whomever you know it it it's very very little personality based and very much just what the operational requirement is and what the what the kind of what the role requires so mm-hmm. we very much you teach everybody everything you know and and even someone even if it's not your specialty if someone's next to you they teach you what you need to know about their job because, for example, you know the medic is the medic, but the medic gets shot too, right? Mm. The medic needs someone to work on him if if he's the person who's the patient. And sure. but everything in the military model is about replicating the system. So you you get very steeped in it early on. But I, I was a ranger instructor uh, after I I attended ranger school, and then a couple of years later I went back. I was a ranger instructor, okay. and um, I was a. a I was in the Army Special Forces, known as the Green Berets, and one of our principal roles is training foreign militaries and foreign elements. So, there, there is quite a bit of, um, you know, so you do become accustomed to training people in various circumstances and various conditions. We're not just creating cookie cutters of ourselves, you know. It's about, again, about the capability. What capability does this person or organization require and what do they have? What are their resource, resources? What are their approaches? So but yeah. so I guess I am a little bit comfortable with, with training and giving out information. So.
1: I, I have a question about um, special forces. So this is real. let stop. We're going to be in manly shit here. Um, <laughs> when you're talking about <laughs> Rangers and Green Berets and, and Navy SEALs and stuff, like I don't know much about this stuff like, I'm a big wimp, but I know, like, I got some friends. That I have one. One of my best friends was in the in the Rangers, but when it comes to like getting in, I always hear these stories about like only two percent of the people will make it all the way through, and it's like the elite of the elite. Can you talk a little bit about like is that legit? Like, is it really that hard, or do they just like hype that up to? I I don't know to just sort of make it like seem like it's it's more elite than it is. Like, wh- what's the deal there? No,
3: I d- I. I don't think now there's the old, there's the Barry Sadler song from 1964, the ballad of the green beret. If you've never heard mm-hmm. that, give, give that a listen just for, <laughs> if you like old timey sixties <laughs> ballads, that that's one for you. But, but he was a, he was a real green beret. And, and that was a hit song in, in the sixties, but it, it talks about a hundred men will test today. And we do have females now too, by the way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but, uh, and only three will win the green beret. So that alludes to a 3%, you know, pass through rate. Uh, You know, attrition in a training pipeline happens through many number of circumstances. And and, uh, some of them can be physical. Some of them can just be washing out through the education process. Um, Mm -hmm. I've not kept abreast of what the, the very current numbers are. But one thing that's interesting, you know, looking at people is a soft science, but things do mean out and, and over, over time and over different training mechanisms and over different lengths and different ways of organizing the events, the numbers do seem to flush out pretty consistently. So whatever you're hearing, um, particularly if it's from like any, any kind of a official source is probably very correct. And, and a lot of it just has to do with, it, it's, it's very intense physically, it's intense psychologically, mm-hmm. it's, it's hard on families, it's hard on individuals, so there's there's layers of things, and, and there's not one any one real thing that's going to you know keep someone from getting to the end. Perseverance does pay off, but there's also this this combination of factors of you know physical fitness, mental fitness, having the time available in your life, choosing to make this a number one priority for years at a time. Mm-hmm. The special forces training pipeline itself is about two years long, y- yeah. you know, so it's a significant commitment. Um, yeah,
1: but the and numbers I'm, I'm are a more or less tra- by trade. Yeah. I'm a recruiter by trade. So I always think about pipelines and I'm always thinking in terms of, you know, with, with special forces training, if it is really as narrow a flow through at the end as, as I hear it is, it's interesting. Like I wonder when they get down to the point where say they have a hundred people that start and then they find towards the end that they've got 20 that realistically could make it like, is there a mandate where you say like, okay, we, we can never take more than X people through the entire training and now we've got twenty, but we got to shake fifteen of these people out, even though they might be above the bar. Like I don't know, that's never the issue.
3: I mean, the, the issue is always just getting enough man, enough personnel to the force. Uh, okay, it's consistent across history, and you know it, it does ebb and flow a little bit with major conflicts, but um these are what they call in the military vernacular low density MOSs uh military occupational occupational specialties that meaning they're just they're always hard to fill mm-hmm. um you know, people aren't breaking their neck to get into this stuff because they do know how hard it is. And they and you know, then there's there are all kinds of um challenges within it. You know, there there are swimming challenges and you know, hiking hiking yep. is the hiking is the, the means through which a lot of the assessment and selection is conducted. And you know, and rucking very long distances with heavy weights and there's land navigation and there's other skills tests and you have to be a team player. Um the the attributes what what, what they what we've gone to and, and I say in recent years, but this I'd say in the last decade or more, the whole person is really evaluated. And and you know we all have different strengths and weaknesses. But there's a picture like a dartboard with little wedges, and you know one mm. being physical and one being mental, and another being team player, and another being maybe your technical aptitude, and another being language and whatnot. You know everybody will kind of have an arrangement, sort of like a shot group, and they'll clump together. But you know clearly you can't have them too far out. Like they've got to be, they've got to be within the standard, you know, across the board, but we've not had the problem of having too many qualified people. You know, it it's often goes the other way. It's just, you know, the, the force, the number of deployments in the, the, the operational organization, the size has increased. So that, that adds demand. And it's, it's a constant challenge. Just maintain qualified people mm-hmm. at least, at least by my recollection.
1: Yeah, no. Based on what you know, like you know Stomp pretty well. You've known him for two years. Like, do you think he'd make it, or is he would, he would he be would he quit after like the first week?
2: Currently, I no, wouldn't no, like, you know. I would have made been... it maybe ten years ago.
3: He's, um, you know, based on the time we've spent together, he's he's really, I feel, one of the people that would probably be pretty ideal. Um, at least on the special forces side, because he has a flexibility of, uh, you know, he's he's not a, like a really linear kind of regimented kind of a person, but but he also understands the team dynamic, and he certainly is physically strong and 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 very capable. Um, you know, it is a young person's sport. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like the NFL or the Rockettes or anything else that that involves <laughs> you know youth and 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 you know vigor you know there there are people you know my age still doing it but you know mm-hmm. just yeah. you're using your joints and your joints have x number of repetitions in them you
2: know <laughs> and you know so uh, a funny side story when i first joined search and rescue that's what started the whole 60 pounds in my pack mike because i did research yeah, yeah. about the admission criteria for some of the special forces and they were like consider doing a pemulope 33 miles with 70 pounds in your pack I mean, like that's what they're doing? Holy moly. I got to up yeah. my game. <laughs> well, I would
1: never make it. Incredible. I'd never make it. I would be like I'd be like, "Can I join the Can I join the personnel department, please?" <laughs> I can't handle that. <laughs> That's honorable work, too. The whole team, exactly. it's
3: all a team yeah. thing. It all comes together. Exactly. You
2: need human resources. <laughs> so the term search and rescue means Search and rescue, whether in you're in military or if you're a volunteer in New Hampshire, what differences do you see between military search and rescue and what's happening here in New Hampshire with fishing, and game, and these volunteer groups? So it's really interesting. There,
3: for, I'll begin by saying there's a lot of similarities, mm-hmm. and then some, and then the differences shake themselves out. But in in the military, the differences. Okay, so when you when you hear the word like combat search and rescue, uh, which is clearly search and rescue conducted in a military environment, there the Air Force and the Navy maintain dedicated units with that as a primary job and a primary responsibility. In other words, we we have this piece of equipment and and we have this team, and, and their only job in life is to train for and execute search and rescue missions. With that being said, every component of the UN, U.S. military can be tasked with performing search and rescue and the way we do it organizationally is it's the unit's responsibility to recover their own people first and foremost and this makes sense for a few different reasons the 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 organization that you're from are the people that know you you're up like the the basic tenets of the military are that you know where your people are Mm -hmm. (laughs) so uh, i guess i guess that's the the thing i'd like to point out as a difference first off is it is that's a big one in the military the the operating assumption your your responsibility as a unit member is to know where you're at and to know where the rest of your team is at the responsibility of your unit leadership is to always know where, where you are at and you're all working together and and you're so you're all supposed to know where each other are that all that all the time. So if if that has diverted in any way, you already have an issue. So we are Mm. already pre-programmed to basically not need to do search and rescue because you should never ever be missing. It's just like Forrest Gump. You have your battle buddy, He's like, that's your first team. Then your second team is, is whatever small assemblage of a unit you have. And then it goes into larger and larger elements. But the minute someone doesn't know where someone is in the military, that's already a red flag. That's already a problem. And, it, and it's your unit's number one job in life to, to get you back immediately right then and there. So larger events are largely mitigated and mm-hmm. prevented. And the other thing the military has going for it is we educate everybody at a base level coming in. So everybody knows the basics of, you know, at least map and compass, at least how to comport yourself. They know, and and again, at a lower level, this is all very basic, but we're all on the same understanding. Know where you're at. Don't get lost. If you are lost, that's a problem and you need to fix it. Mm. And then from there, if it's from your unit, your unit is most likely to know what they tasked you with, where you were how to get you back and then if they need more resources they can ask for them and it will come it's it's department of defense policy it's our contract with these people that we will absolutely get you back Mm -hmm. we're still getting pilots back out of vietnam it might just be a femur Mm. 70 years later but you know it i get you we will come and get you but that's different on the civilian side everything is volunteer and everything is is um you know, people can make a plan if they want to, people communicate if they choose to, people can ask for help if they'd like to. But on the civilian side, you're basically, it's, everything's an opt-in method. Got Whereas you. on the military, it's it, we've got so many, it's it's baked in the cake. You know, the the not being lost part is baked in the cake and then the recovering people quickly is already going on. And every element in the military is, they know about search and rescue techniques. If you think about it, Finding people is our job what you do with them when you get there is just a sub layer in other words finding finding the enemy is
1: the same as finding your friend. It's just different actions on contact mm-hmm. I would think too the on the civilian side like you don't have I guess as many factors when it comes like I think of the guy like Bo Bergdahl that just walked off and like they I think there was like a two or three day period where they were like really going crazy trying to find him but you're dealing with like outside risk to yourself whereas in civilian in New Hampshire like you don't have to worry about someone coming out of the woods and shooting you but obviously in the military like the risks are much much higher.
3: So that does complicate the layers and that's where they're, 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 uh, there are layers of complexity and, and that's where you do get into more specialized methods and and this so you're, you're right Mike you're absolutely right you know so search and rescue would be like the plain vanilla and that happens in the military too like mm-hmm. someone just wanders off maybe not even in a combat zone or whatever and you're just looking for them so very clean you know you're not worried about people shooting at you you're not worried about concealing the act that you're looking for them or you're not worried about them trying to conceal themselves from being found mm-hmm. see that's the hard part in the military is you're trying to be found, but only by the people that you want to find you, right? So you're playing like hide and seek with some people, but you're playing find me with other people <laughs> and it's all at the same time. Incredible. So yeah. this adds layers of complexity, but we plan all that in also. So mm-hmm. that's, that's where it, it does take some different directions and this could go up to and including, you know, areas that we call denied areas where like there's not even a U.S. presence in there and, and you might be using all kinds of different ways to get these people out, but, um, bringing it back to the, like the the individual actions are the same. Mm-hmm. And that's, what's interesting is, yeah. um, if you're a responsible hiker, you know, first of all, you're, you're, you're doing something within your capability. You're, you're giving your plan to somebody. You've got some kind of a notification, even if it's just like a drop dead, like if you don't hear from me by X time on X day, yeah. something went wrong, you know? And, and um, those are the things that go a long way to helping, mm-hmm. and um, the way the way you organize and conduct a search is largely the same as well. Again, the difference out here being it's more voluntary and um, it's more opt in, right? Like in other words, we we can't just say, "Hey, you're not doing X activity today. You're looking for this person." Mm-hmm. You, you know, it's it's based on kind of. Um, Everybody's sort of volunteer level prioritization, but uh, the the individual action or the, the the actions on the on the side. Once you start looking for the person, looking for a person is looking for a person. Mm-hmm. You know, you've you've got a you've got a command element. You're you're organizing whatever um, array of capabilities you have to find this person. You're um, using the tools you have to figure out uh, where they might be, how they might be you know, you clearly want to locate them as soon as possible. Um, there are elements that are similar, and sometimes you might not be able to get them back, but you can support them. Like, in other words, we might, we might not be able to get a person out immediately, but we could maybe find them, contact them, and at least keep them warm, give them some food, give them some water mm. until we work out an, a, a plan of getting them out. Now, the, the scope and scale in the middle of the whites is a lot less than – Supporting them in 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 a a country somewhere, but it's all the same concept. Yeah, exactly.
2: Yeah. So, do you think we're structured to to do the job well here in New Hampshire for what we face? I mean, well is really a product of you know are
3: are there a lot of lost people wandering around out there? I mean, it's in other words, it, it, it clearly works here, or there would be something else happening. Uh, you know what I mean? It, it's kind of a needs-based system. If 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 there were too many people getting lost or if if they were staying out there and never being found, we would probably be doing it differently. Cause well, that's an
2: interesting s- question, though, because the the numbers are going up. Is that a function of our performance or just interest in hiking? Or what do you think about that?
3: Well, it seems our numbers have been at least in the past few years that i've been up here it seems that the numbers are pretty consistent with with rescues a year and calls for service
2: to fishing and game and what's, what's your take on that mike cuz this guy he's the data cruncher he could give us uh, some
1: i think and again i i i got to get off my butt and do uh the 20 20- 21 summary, but I think the theme that I'm hearing, and I think Ty kind of confirmed this as well, is that the the callouts I think are pretty steady year over year, but it sounds like there's a fair number of uh, increases the last couple of years in the um, escorts, the, the escorts or the the sort of the 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 fishing game calls where they're saying like, okay, you can you can wait it out overnight, and then walk yourself out. Um, the panic calls that aren't, aren't getting sent res- for rescues. Personally,
3: I think it's absolutely amazing for the two and a half million visitors or three right. million visitors a year that they have here, yeah. that it's not more. I, I honestly am, am, am amazed. And, and I think that that's really, it goes to show how we, we constantly underestimate ourselves. Mm-hmm. I mean, because I mean, and, and we've seen the gambit of people and, and I'm not one to bash novices because... frankly, just the call outs I've been on have largely been mid-level people. Uh, Mm. There have been a handful of novices and there have been a handful of like really expert hikers. But the vast majority are people with a bit of hiking under their belt. And then, you know, that that one ankle roll or that one old injury or or that one false step on that one spot of Falling Waters Trail. Mm. And that gets you your litter carry out. But uh, right. Uh, and just my perception, of, yeah. I've only you know I've been here for three full seasons, so that that's just you know in in my snapshot of it. To, to answer your question more specific about the assemblage of how it happens here, I think it's a very interesting combination. Um, Fishing games charter is is really broad. I, I, we touched on it in the opening. Uh, you know, they've got all the snowmobile stuff, they've got all the ATV stuff, they've got the, the fish and the game part, but then mm-hmm. and then they've got the 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 responsibility for basically of all all the rural you know missing people in the state and all of the dives, hmm. so they they have a really broad responsibility. They have police power. Yeah, full, full, full police, full police power. power. So they're so, basically like a like a gendarme auxiliary to the uh, to the state police, which is very interesting.
2: Right. So I've heard the term quasi military. Is that
3: accurate? Well that that's why I made that reference like the so we don't use the model here in the US but in in a lot of countries they have like a gendarmerie or a um it, it's a like a national police it would be it would be almost like an FBI but an FBI in a more of like an active patrol status like a st- and, yeah. and
2: you know <laughs> it's amazing it's very interesting and
3: in a lot of countries use that construct and they're like an auxiliary or they more, have a more roving and that's kind of how fish and game works in in conjunct in conjunct at least as I've seen it yeah. with the state police here in New Hampshire, but hmm. then the other layer, of course, is the volunteer groups on the search and rescue side, and that's pretty interesting because Very. the amount of manpower exceeds Fish and Games' application to the problem each year. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, or it's it's roughly neck and neck, but I think the volunteers end up on top by about a thousand hours, five hundred hours, give or take, on any given year. But mm-hmm. the fact that so much volunteer help augments this activity is really interesting and unique. Um, yeah. and and it's it is pretty amazing it that it comes together. And it it does. And I guess that's what I gauge my thing on. It, it was very different to me coming up here and learning about it, but um, it appears to be working within the scope of, of the requirement. I, I In the future, that might shift, you know, depending on involvement. Or, or, you know, whether, whether your numbers go way up on the one side with incidences or whether your numbers drop on involvement, clearly, if, if, if anything shifts one way or the other, there might be a change required. But at, as we sit here right now, it seems to be working pretty well.
1: Yeah, and Mark, I had a question for you personally. When you got involved in volunteer search and rescue, and again, I'm going to make some assumptions, but I'm probably wrong here. Coming from a military background, I would assume that your approach to things would be sort of much more regimented maybe than some of the you know volunteers that don't have any perspective on how things are done in the military. Was there any, I guess, f- level of frustration for you when you initially joined on how things were handled just because you weren't used to the process that the volunteer teams take or was it a pretty seamless transition for you
3: well it's a it's a really good question and and the um the differences that i bumped into were they were significant at first but it was a difference in just not um appreciating there's a very specific situation that happens here in the whites. And I've not done civilian search and rescue like out in Colorado or, you know, out in, you know, out in the Pacific Northwest or anywhere else. But um, when, I was, when I was leaving the military, the one thing that I was interested in doing was trying to figure out like how I could, how I could take these skills and fit in, you know, out in the civilian world. And I learned about the incident command system Mm-hmm. and the National Inc- Incident Management Strategy, which was born out of Wild West firefighting, is really where they got the structure from. Yeah, The large-scale Wild West firefighters. And then after 9-11, they figured out, man, none of these agencies can talk together. We need to figure out a way to work together. So I really boned up on that and learned a lot about it. And I felt like, wow, okay, this makes a lot of sense. And then I was told that's how that works out here. And so I did arrive thinking that it would be a bit more structured. More specifically with just task organization and communication and things like that. But then what I ran into was just that what you have in the whites here is a really kind of a, it's a very kind of unique event because the, the whites are a very defined territory. Mm-hmm. And the way the, the way the volunteer organizations have their, their, their own little subset territories, you're largely working in the same area. And so, in the military, the reason we need to communicate so closely and the reason we need to plan in such detail is we go anywhere in the world and do the same stuff over and over and over again, but we've never been there before. So, like, we do everything by map reconnaissance. We do everything by looking at the data. We do everything by, by learning as much as we can, but then we, we apply all the universal stuff and then we can overlay that anywhere like here looks like nevada here looks like the alps here looks like afghanistan but what you have here is you have these people that have been doing this here for so long and they've been working in the same problem set for so long that they basically they're at the, a team functioning level where you just don't need to communicate with that granularity and so there's nothing wrong with that but that is different than what i was used to um the very pleasant side of that is is this is a very easygoing climate and this is not a high stress environment. And other than the fact that someone's having a a hard day, you know, because they've they've been debilitated by an injury or they've been overcome by, you know, atmospheric conditions or something like that. But other than that, you know, as we mentioned, nobody's shooting at us and we're we're still in the middle of the White Mountains. We're still in a really wonderful place and, and the people are volunteering. So why come and who wants to, why hang out with jerks if you're volunteering, right? There's just no need. Yeah. So that was very pleasant and it was really fun to become a part of. And it was also a very, it was a really deep learning lesson for me that um, we, we could all use this lesson from time to time. And that is different ways aren't wrong. Different ways are just different. And every organization has its own climate and every area has its own kind of way that, that things unfold. This yeah, this culture. Yeah, so that that's a, a long way to say it, but yes, there. I came at it very much thinking, okay, I know NIMS, I know ICS, I, I know how searches and rescues are conducted, and I'm thinking that everybody does them the same way everywhere, and that's not entirely the case. Although the fundamentals are the same.
2: Well, I'm sure fishing game does. I mean, they they are statewide. <clears throat> the variable is the you know volunteer teams. Um, I don't see fishing games approach changing from region to region in the state, but for sure, the teams are all different um, yeah. culturally, like just the way they go about things. But fundamentally, they're doing most of what other teams are doing.
3: Even fishing game is very—they're um, very amenable, though. You know yeah. what I mean like in other words when we get to the patient or when the fish, when when we all true, converge true. you know they don't say hey you got to you know, do this I, i'm so and so yeah. and i'm the incident commander for this you know for the you know for this iteration and you know and it it's not all block and line and it's not all i mean it if it comes down to a decision point someone will make it you know yeah. and direction will be given but it's it's all very transparent that's it, a good point i don't think a patient would ever be able to perceive who's actually in charge or, or at what phase of, of the process they are. It's very fluid and seamless on the patient side, I feel.
2: Well, there's a lot of give and take and a lot of trust with the officers, with the volunteer teams and vice versa. And that's towards a better outcome in general, I think. Yeah.
3: There is a lot of cooperation.
2: Absolutely.
1: Any uh, So, Mark, as far as, it's been a while, I think, since you exited the military, but future trends, like me, me and Stomp have talked about um, drones, but more and more, like, I'm starting to see, like, these personal flight vehicles and things like that. Like, do you pay attention to any of that stuff? Any thoughts about, like, any future tech trends related to search and rescue that you're really interested in or excited about? I I think the biggest one is, is, is closer to home,
3: and it's already here. And it's really another one of these, it's one of these bridges between um, the military and civilian systems, and that is the PLBs. Mm. Personal locator yeah, beacon. Yeah, you know, the, the spots and, the, and and things like that. And I'm not even up on all the different makers and brands that are out there right now. because, But the, the fascinating thing about that is that technology works through the national systems that are designed to find pilots and planes and military personnel and everything like that. And the Air Force is the proponent of this in the mainland U.S. So, mm-hmm. you know, when you activate that beacon – there's the the National Mis- Mission Coordination Center in Maryland, and that's run by NOAA, and I believe NASA. And then there's the Air Force Re- Recovery Coordination Center, and I believe they're down in Florida. Mm-hmm. And depending on the type of device and the signal, one of them will get it, and they, they, they work to get closer together anyway. So, talking about that uh, kind of local thing, we have, this, we have this shift now to where normally, say, you went on a hike up Franconia Ridge. Normally, the first person that might report you missing might be, you know, someone down at the trailhead or someone back home. Well, with these, with these locator beacons, now what you have is, you know, a signal's going up to a satellite and it's going down to Florida. And they talk with Maryland and they try to triangulate as best they can. And they, you know, then they'll coordinate with the state because it's still each state's role to figure out how they're going to handle search and rescue. And and they'll pass that down to the state, and then the state will give that to, you know, in New Hampshire, that's fish and game. So it's very interesting that, you know, now we're bouncing the signal off a satellite, and we are incorporating a national um, security infrastructure to facilitate civilian, uh, you know, uh, search and rescue recovery. That has helped people get recovered. Um, There is maybe a hazard for, you know, false reports or, you know, lesser incidences kind of, you know, I don't know, causing more work. I don't know what their capacity really is. I have yeah. not heard of it being a problem. <laughs> Personally, I don't know much about the drones or the personal flight devices or, or anything like that, so I really couldn't speak intelligently on that. But but the um, the locator beacons are a big game changer because, as we've mentioned, as anybody who lives up here knows, you know, the mountains are the great equalizer for both FM communications and for cell communications and <laughs> even for sat devices, even for people, you know, if, if you're fortunate enough to have a phone or a sat phone or something like that, you know, you still need to get up high to get a signal. You can be, you know, the, the ridges and valleys can really mess up your signals, but the, but the, the, the locator beacons are pretty reliable and, and, and you know, and hmm. now you can even work two way communications through them. So that's, yeah. that can be a real help. <clears throat> so I, I think, I think that, and that's allowing people to maybe, um, hike with more confidence or at least let their loved ones, you know, have a little bit more peace of mind. The Mm -hmm. two-way ones are great because someone could actually ascertain what your condition is and see what support you require. Um, That's always the big question. What are we going to find when we get there? Initial reporting is often wrong, Mm -hmm. you know? So no matter how well everybody does it, trying to get that information from, you know, about where a person is and what their condition is, if, if they can speak for themselves in that regard through one of these devices, that's a huge help.
2: I've noticed that those have been really helpful. I've, I see a lot more hikers using those in reaches and whatnot. And uh, I wonder if we'll get to the point in search and rescue here where we'll incorporate those. But it just seems so cost prohibitive—some you know, subscriptions and everything else,
3: right? And well, I mean, it, it seems to be working well enough in in the fact that at least as it's working, you know, the state gets the information and it comes down to us, you know, whether we had any organic way to, to do any more or less with it. Um, I mean, the whites is a pretty defined area. Yeah. Y- you know, it, it's, it's, that being said, you can, if someone's just curled up in the middle of the Pemi wilderness, they could be lost there for forever, you mm-hmm. know, but, uh, um, yeah, I, d- I don't know what, what
2: we could do more with it, honestly, because I mean, well, In terms of our communication, member to Uh, member member too, member because that's always a challenge. Hmm. Thankfully, though, we're not, uh, (laughs) you know, like you said, we're in this defined area, and we know where we can communicate, where we can't, and where the issues will pop up. So, yeah,
3: and there there are meth. I mean, if if we. Search is kind of being the bigger challenge, you know. Carry out is more simple, but uh, yeah. there are controls that we could in place if if, if we had um, you know, if it's a, like thinking back to the um, Mr. Smart who was missing three years ago, the back in the Pemi wilderness, I believe that was his last name,
2: uh, uh Chris,
3: you, you know, staff. staff, that's right. But you know, if you coordinate with your elements, if everybody's briefed on the plan, if everybody knows you know the map, and if everybody has. You know, hard, you know, like a hard backstop to work against, and also, you know, time and things like that. It doesn't take a lot of tech to mm-hmm. to, to incorporate a little bit of uh, a little bit of control, a little bit of communication, and and a little bit of safety oversight in these activities. That that's something that in the okay, so I, I didn't I didn't come with a with like a list of wants or anything like that, but yeah. like that's one. Ask going back to your question, Mike, about the organization. That's one thing that could be stepped up if necessary. And it really is better if you've trained it first. And that is, it's nice that things are amenable and it's nice that things are loose and it's nice that things are very flexible. But if you did have to put a lot of people out on a complex search, it would be good to have training and rehearsals in some, a little bit more refined levels of, of, of um, control and communication. Yeah. 'Cause it it yeah. don't, you don't even really need radios for that, but you just you just need um everybody to know what's going on and, and people to kind of communicate and check back in and, and uh you know kind of follow the guidelines. It would take yeah. just a tish more discipline.
2: <laughs> Have like, you ever uh found yourself in a, a particular situation where you needed to be rescued or or mm-hmm. searched for? Any close calls in your so, hiking adventures? You know,
3: it's funny because when, when when you asked me to come on, you know, I I thought I thought back and I thought why do I care about this and and so the answer is I was in reconnaissance for the larger portion of my career and in reconnaissance you are farther forward normally than most all of your friendly friendly elements and and you are you're much more aware of the assets that are available to come and get you but you're also as a mechanism of your life you spend a lot of time laying alone or with a small team out in the middle of nowhere mm-hmm. for days and weeks at a time and as you're out there you do consider man if something bad happened out here i really need external help in other words like you're you just you're not sustainable you know as as a buddy team or as a small team and so i think that's what really got me into it was you you're very very aware of your vulnerability and you're very very aware that if if help needs to come it's going to have to come from somewhere and so no i personally have never been you know injured in the backcountry or lost to such a degree that i needed Someone defy me, but being a member of a, either a, an infantry reconnaissance team or a sniper team or a special forces team or any number of these instances where you're in a very small element, very far from support, once you're out there all alone, you really realize that, hey, if, if help is going to come, it's got to come from somewhere because it, it's nowhere in sight on the map around me. I, I can see you know, eight miles in any direction and there's nothing but me. So wow. I, I think that, you that's know, a hell of a I think that's, sensation. What, I think that's what, what kind of brought it into me. And I've just always loved the woods. and I've always loved, loved hiking and camping. And I think it's just realism of, you know, everybody's had that stumble and you're not sure about your ankle. You take a few tentative steps, you know, <laughs> and you know, you're really hopeful that it's you know, all together structurally. Right. But like it doesn't take a lot of um it's it, on any given day it could be
1: you it is funny that you you say that because i've had that moment like multiple times where you, you know you're out in the great gulf and you're having a great time and you're solo and then all of a sudden you roll that ankle and you just it starts rolling through your head like okay that was a close call and i could have been in big trouble here but um, yeah luckily nine times out of ten it, it turns out okay
3: yeah, and you really can push through a lot, and, you re- and the body can do amazing things. And 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 again, like going back to how many visitors we have here and how few incidents we have, it really is a testament to human resiliency. And 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 you know, even people with little experience, like how strong a person really can be when they need to. Um, and and a lot of the people we come and carry out, even they've made really solid runs at getting themselves down. You know, a lot of them have scoot- oh, yeah. scooted themselves along and moved themselves along with some pretty significant injuries. Yeah, You I agree. know, And, you know, we we don't meet a lot of people who just kind of like went, eh, and just sat down. You, you know, ma- many of them really gave a really hard run at, at not involving other people before they finally throw up the flag. Yeah,
1: agreed. Any good stories about Stomp on missions? Oh, brother. <laughs>
3: Man, you know, I... Yes, but but it, it, they're all good. So,
2: <laughs> sorry, Mike. But, yeah, when
3: I
1: say good stories, I mean embarrassing. I know, <laughs> I know.
3: Here, so here's the thing. So like, I'm almost. I noticed somewhere in the notes something about Martians. Oh yeah, and, and yeah. I don't know it's, anything about aliens. Martians, but okay, I'm close to one here in New Hampshire, and what I mean by that is, I hadn't been here before at all before three years ago. <laughs> And, and, you know, and I walked through the state before I ever drove a car in it. And then I just moved all my crap here. And that was that. And, and I was at a point in my life after 21 and a half years, uh, you know, in the closest knit community that you could be in, in the military. And I walked away from all that. And I separated, um, from my wife. So a 26 year relationship and, and, you know, another very ground, you know, just everything in my life that had been something for me was gone. And, I was really at a place of, you know, who am I and what am I doing, and you know that that's a wonderful place to find yourself. But you do eventually have to figure out who you are and what you're doing. And, and mm-hmm. so I moved here and I knew no one. I knew no one but Sandy, and I didn't really even know her. I I just knew it was worth exploring. Um, what I knew was that people that help people are generally decent people. And and what I you know what I knew was is that you know I didn't want to just shoehorn myself in to, to this community. I wanted to just find a way to be a part, to be myself. And, and so it's, it's very interesting that I, um, I just looked up Pemisar on the, on the internet and i had found and printed an application, but what's really funny is the very, the very next day after that, Marty Talbot came into yoga hmm. and I met Marty Talbot and Marty Talbot and I just were talking after yoga class and she mentioned something about search and rescue. And I said, yeah, I just moved here, but I'd like to help. And she told me about Pemi. And I said, huh. yeah, I've got the application on my dining room table as yeah. we speak. Yeah,
2: it's Providence. It's like right. all timing. But it's so great. getting
3: back to Jamie, <laughs> Jamie, it, Jamie comes with the package and he, he's, you know, he's very, very embedded in, in, in Pemi SAR and just search and rescue here in general. But what I had hoped to happen happened. And that was I met good people doing good things. And, and community, and, yeah, and over time I, I learned more about the community and I found other ways to help and, and and it really did work out. And the thing I noticed on the first couple calls was that people had genuine interest in each other. You know, you know, Jamie would talk to the other people and he knew about them and he knew about their life and he knew about what was going on. And, you know, clearly we're all focused on the patient and getting them to the care that they need. But, but more than that, I could see that these people were, were truly, they knew each other at, at a really intimate level. And, and so... um I don't. Unfortunately, I don't have any really embarrassing stories about Jamie. Good. Good, um, good. That's great. I mean, we could pick. We could pick on him. We could pick on him about his hip. I oh, mean, that's that's God. like, you know, that's a, like a perennial favorite.
1: But uh, well, that's what I always said. Is I said he he became the guy at the trailhead with the clipboard and the pencil. Oh, for a for, while there, I had to for I a mean, year. Geez. Yeah. Yeah. I
3: think I think that's the funny thing about Pemi or about Jamie is that so Jamie has a mind and Jamie has a capability to do a lot more and to be that person who can help facilitate this at a much deeper level. <laughs> but Pemi or but Jamie, see that's how <laughs> synonymous they are. Jamie is dude. We're gonna we uh, He's
1: giving away your. But, uh, your uh, he oh, can't keep himself it. from running up superhero. the trail.
3: You know, <laughs> with the, with, he can't keep himself from barreling up the trail. You know, with the, oh. with the litter in his hands. You know, and yeah. getting to the patient so you know i'm sure he's chewing his ankle off in the parking lot you know like oh I'll just hop on one leg like a monty python you know <laughs> and uh so it's funny yeah. but yeah i guess that's my funny story about jamie is you won't find him administering anything although he bears a title that would lead you to believe he administers something but in, in fact you're going to find him operationally on the ground carrying people over and over and over and over and over again
2: yeah super super hip, important hip, to me hip or,
3: hip or not hip one hip two hips three <laughs> hips it doesn't matter he's going to be doing it
2: <laughs> yeah all it's right. a passion well, it's called yeah. passion that's i all. will continue to dig
1: i will continue to dig for embarrassing <laughs> stories and
3: I maybe fight. i'm just so, not the guy you know maybe i'm just not yeah, paying close exactly. enough attention he might have <laughs> he might have fallen and smacked his face i might have missed it
1: i know who to talk to i get jen and Lindsay back uh, I, they'll they'll tell me everything i need to know yeah
2: <laughs> well this has been great so Yes, this is good so
1: um very interesting I guess last question for you mark and you know you can punt on this one if you want but it's a subject that always comes up and I know our friend Casey um, this is near and dear to his heart but um, sort of reintegration of military into civilian life and all that comes with that and all the challenges that you know we, you see over time and I'm sure there's many stories where it's a very easy transition and you know it's it's a happy story but I also I feel like we also hear a lot of stories about the difficulty of transitioning back into civilian life. So is there anything that you, any messages you want to give to people that might be looking at going through that or any thoughts from your perspective about
2: um, sort of reintegration after being in the military? Yeah, we have have a sizable amount of vets that listen. Um, Nice. Uh, Yeah. So I've, yeah, it it was, it's been my life,
3: honestly. I mean, it's, I've, I can speak with great experience to this. So I, I was 18 and 19 years old. My first enlistment, and I went to Somalia in uh, 1993. And I wasn't there for like the big battle of Mogadishu or anything like that. But we we were locked and loaded with live rounds. And like I found, you know, I'm driving a driving a Humvee all over Somalia, and I found landmines, and we found weapons caches, and there were grenade attacks on you know, convoys in the city and stuff like that. Like it was, it was a dangerous place. Let's just say, you know, um, for the larger part, nothing happened while I was there, but you, you had to be alert. And, and I mean, not only that, it's just, you know, you, you're going to an entirely different part of the world. You're seeing very, very different living conditions. It really changed me. And it really, um, it impacted me in, in deep ways, both, both good and challenging, but um, or even Hurricane Andrew relief. You know, watching what happened in Hurricane Andrew and getting to help was a wonderful thing. But I had these two really, really phenomenal experiences. But then, you know, I find myself back in my hometown, and you know, and I didn't even know of it as as readjustment challenges back then. But you know, I I dropped out of school, um, and I was at Penn State, a good school, and and uh, you know, looking back, it really was that. It really was a reintegration challenge, and I just I just didn't even know it for that. You know, and with youthful exuberance, I, I I finally made it out of it. But like, um, now the second time, the second time when I retired in 2016, I knew what was coming at least in in a small degree. And so I, you know, and even with that, I I you know whether or not my relationship needed to end is is a question worth considering separately. But the fact that two months after I retired, I I. I just packed my car and drove away from my house and never went back. Um I think that's indicative of the stress of the entire kind of time in my life and and the severing of of that connection. Um there there is there is a real bond you know when you when you've endured true life or death situations with people there's a bond that that's very very different than just other types of bonds and just the nature of the work, you know the, the the bench the benchmark level of commitment of just coming in and 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 everything you do to get to 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 serve and then all the experiences you go through and then severing that it's really significant and um, I do speak to this on occasion it, it's one of the only things I do kind of publicly talk about I'll I'll be frank about it I mean it's it's not just PTSD but it's just this this whole thing of these experiences are beyond the pale of of just what happens out in, in normal civilian society. And I think that's what makes people feel different or that they can't relate or that they can't connect. And and, and that, that's like a very general way of saying it, but it, it really is a profound shift. And um, I've used a number of techniques to help. Um, I've availed myself of um, mental health services for well over a decade, both while I was in and since I've gotten out. Um, I found the yoga and the mindfulness and the breath work to be the thing that, that helped me the most significantly. Um, and, and I will talk to anybody who's willing to listen about that and how that works. And and for anybody, honestly, who there's any kind of anxiety or any kind of challenge, I really believe that that is a way that you can, it doesn't solve your problems, you'll still have difficult life decisions, but it will help you be the best you you can be to make those decisions. Um, the challenge with what people perceive to be a civilian-military divide is this, we just have to keep talking. We just have to engage. Um, you know, I mentioned why I joined PEMI or why I volunteer on the ambulance. The fact is I, I am quite comfortable sitting alone in the woods in New Hampshire and not talking to anybody. And I, I do isolate myself and I don't feel like I fit in and I struggle with social relationships and I don't like small talk. And I do feel very, very different from a lot of people that I find in civilian life. But the fact is we're human, and the fact is we're all more the same than different. And the fact is if you challenge those assumptions, and if you go beyond your comfort zone, if you risk the vulnerability of being yourself with other people, you'll, you will find that, that we are more the same than different, and you will be able to tear down some of those barriers, And I'm I'm appreciative of people's respect. On the other side, I I don't think that people on the civilian side are cold to us. I think they're respectful, and I think they tiptoe around the subject because they don't want to upset people. You know, they don't they don't want to like ask about uncomfortable things, or they don't want to touch you know a touchy nerve. And I can appreciate that. But I'll just say to anybody on either side of this equation, it's really not about being a civilian or being in the military. It's about Risking the vulnerability to show your true self to another, and if you can do that and if you can do that with the healthiest people you can manage to get yourself around it'll bear fruit and it will take time um, i I'm here tonight because I feel good about doing it I'm here tonight because it's taken what six years i don 't know how long 2016 I retired so you know, it's taken that long for stuff to grab traction. It's taken that long for, for things to actually begin to come together. It's taken that long for organic to rela- relationships to unfold. Yeah. And, and so I don't mean to go on and prattle no, on about that, but that, great. it is a real thing, but it's, it's surmountable. It, takes, it just takes, it's like anything else, it takes attention, it takes time, it takes compassion, and it, it takes the risk of vulnerability.
1: Yeah. And I think people don't, I think we discount sort of like the hard coding of personalities a lot of the time. And we, we always go towards a sort of a one size fits all approach with everybody. And the point you talked about is like, some people are naturally introverts. Some people have a much higher appreciation for new experiences. Some people are sort of much more comfortable about their routine. So if you get somebody that is a natural introvert, that is, is somebody that is more of a creature of routine and comfort, versus, you know, somebody that looks for new experiences or extroverted, like by definition, they're going to have an even harder time. So you have to appreciate people sort of where they're starting from. And then when you go through an experience, like you talked about in the military where you're, um, you know, it's a shared experience and it's a tight bonding situation. Like I can imagine, and I understand why it would be harder to, to reintegrate into society. And we're going to talk about this next week. We have a through hiker coming on in the AT, and you can probably talk about this too. It's like you get into these routines over the period of even a month or two months doing a through hike. And even that we find people have a difficult time reintegrating. So for 20 years in the military, it's, oh, yeah. it's totally understandable.
3: Yeah, it, there's, I mean, there and there is, it is a different world, a different language, different lifestyle and things like that. But the thing, the thing is... It's okay to shift. And, you know, one of the hardest things I ever did was laying that down, you know, because it's and I mean, some of it, there's, there's a little bit of gender bias, but honestly, I, I, I don't think that's the biggest thing about it. But for anybody in one of those highly competitive, highly driven, like achievement oriented or just like challenge based fields, you tend to identify with your work, you, you know, but what, what are you? Are you you or are you the work? And what happens when you can no longer do the work or when you just choose to, to part with the work or just time and age and injury, you know, you know take you away from the work? Who are you then? And, and so this has been the, the most challenging time of my life, but it's also the most rewarding. And I would just encourage someone to, to try to drop the us and them mentality try to try to, that that's an instinctive response you know we, we try to identify people as threat or non-threat and you know of course that 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 goes to the core of everything you've you've trained and done you know for your whole military career but the fact is things are safer here things are better here it, it's it's okay to lay down some of these protective behaviors and that's really the heart of it, it the heart of it is you know can can we let go of thoughts and habits and behaviors that our body instinctively believes is, are keeping us alive because out here they're destroying relationships and out here they're building walls unnecessarily. And out here they're reinforcing negative patterns about thinking everybody's out to get you. And and so this stuff can weigh pretty heavily across a whole spectrum of, you know, you're worried about your physical security. You're worried about revealing too much. You're v- worried about letting people in and all this stuff. And, and it, I, I courage is not a misplaced word here. That that just to be vulnerable and be open and be yourself, it, it's it's freaking terrifying. It's much more easy to say, yeah, I'm I'm Mark Rowland. I'm a Green Beret. Then then you're everybody knows what to expect. Everybody has you like in a little box. No, you know it it if you. But if you just want to say I'm Mark, and you just want to be that 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 opens up this whole Pandora's box of like what life can be, but that's that's all the good things in life are in that box. so I mean, I just encourage people it, it feels very awkward and it's going to feel awkward it's going to keep feeling awkward. I'd say keep going into that discomfort, keep going towards what you don't want to do and and because in in that that's where the overcoming it comes and and i I can't tell you that it's easy, but I can tell you that it it will definitely work out better. And, and um, I, I could be a very negative person. I could be a very, very jaded person. There have been a lot of experiences that caused a lot of pain and they, they will continue to do so. They just don't stop. But the fact is that life is good. And the fact is it's worth being here.
1: Yeah, and the thing too is if you don't keep moving, like you kept going past the 100 mile wilderness and then you moved into New Hampshire and now you're here. If you hadn't been, if you didn't have the strength to do that, who knows what direction you would have been going into? So it's we're glad you're here, and we're glad that you you continue to move forward.
3: Well, thanks. Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's funny how things go. Um, there was nothing planned about anything about how the past few years have unfolded, and it's all gone really nice. And and it,
2: you know, <laughs> that's great. Well, you deserve it. And I'm going to say it. Thank you for your service, and thank you for your ongoing service as a awesome public servant. You know, you're out there helping the community.
1: Thank you. Yeah, exactly. And if I wipe out on the trail and I need a litter carry, I, I expect you to show up. <laughs> we'll come. I, yeah. <laughs> if you build it into your hiking
3: plan, it, it makes it a nice time. You know, exactly. I sit around, yeah. and it's not that I rejoice <laughs> in someone's discomfort or anything like that. Yeah. It's just that, you know, I keep a little gas in the tank for a carry out. you yeah. know? Absolutely. It's you never know when they're going to happen, and you never know how long they're going to take, and you never know where they're going to be. And so, <laughs> yeah. like, it's like this this nice little placeholder in, in your life, like, a, you know, and it's just a big yeah. little question mark, you know, is it going to happen or not? Yeah.
2: yeah,
1: I'm planning mine. I'm either going to end up needing a rescue halfway down the Lincoln slide, or <laughs> it's going to be... Let me think. In the middle of the Kilkenny Ridge on the weeks, we'll need to carry out. Like, I can find a good spot for you guys.
2: Make sure it's
0: 3 a.m. too. Like Yeah, 3 a.m. too, right? So, Slasher's Hiking Topic of the Week.
1: We did want to move on to a quick segment about trail design. So, Stomp sent me a PDF... From the federal government, that is 178 pages about like all the rules to build trails. Show, so, Show prep, here you go, Mike. Show prep. I'm like, what the <laughs> hell is this? 180p? <laughs> like, what well, is he? Out you of did mind the read ahead, right? <laughs> it, yeah, yeah, and I read it all too. But it's interesting. So I don't think we have uh, like. I, although I will say like, there's been a lot of trail building on like the Cohos Trail up north, but I can't think of like too many new trails. In this area, I think we're pretty well established. Oh, sure. um, but I I think that, the, I, so I just picked out a few things. So I, I skimmed like the 178 pages and I, I skimmed out a few, I picked out a few things that I thought were interesting. So one of them is, you know, you're. There's a whole like science to this and all, and there's like expert level trail builders. But the interesting ones that I picked out here was one is that when you're building a trail, the trail is supposed to look like it was supposed to be there. So basically, as you build it, there should be little evidence that there was work that went into them. So mm-hmm. that means that like especially these early founders, like they had to figure out like the contour of the land, figure out, the you know, going on the ridge lines or going on. Um, the drainages, figuring out ways to move along them, and they, they in some cases, they did a pretty good job. But um, I, I found that pretty interesting that you're, you're basically supposed to be able to figure out where the trail should go from a natural perspective and, and build it that way. Hmm. The other one here that the, the, this rule was broken in the white so significantly, but the ten percent rule, so you're not supposed to build anything. Ten percent grade or more.
2: Oh wow! You'd never 10%. get anywhere here without that. Well, that's yeah, what—that's yeah. the role of a switchback, then.
1: Yeah. 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 Exactly. Yeah. And then they say the the half rule, and this is sort of an extension of this, is that um, the trail grade should be no more than half the side slope grade. So basically, like if you're going on a slanted grade that's like eight percent, you should only be going up that that slanted grade at a 4% rate in order to ensure that the, the trail doesn't get washed out.
3: The runoff, gotcha. the velocity yeah. of the water. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. That, huh. that makes a lot of sense.
1: It sure does. Yeah, which is interesting. Um, and then the last one here, is sort of the dirt, water, and gravity are what trail work is all about. Dirt is your trail support. Terra Firma makes getting from point A to point B possible. Um, The whole point of trail work is to get dirt where you want it and keep it there. And then water is the most powerful stuff in the world. Gravity is water's partner in crime. Their mission is to take your precious dirt to the ocean. So the whole point of trail work is to keep your trail out of water's grip, which basically, again, this half rule is exactly what it talks about, is to ensure that you're not getting the trail wiped out you got to make sure that your slope is not so steep on a side grade, because a lot of times you are building a trail on, the, on a side of a grade, and you've got to make sure that you're not putting
2: it so steep that it's just going to get run off by water. Fascinating stuff. Where, yeah. where did these rules come from, just trial and error? I don't know. I I don't
1: really know, but I, I do wonder there
3: there are some masters at this. Oh, you I bet. you've got some people. I've, I can get you some people that might be interested in coming on and talking to you about this. That'd be because as as a I'm I'm basically a lay person in relation to this subject, but I mm-hmm. I I have seen and talked to some of the people that do this like at a master level and it is wow. That that whole thing about it fitting like it should be there. Think about how often like that's something so natural and something that doesn't even occur to us so frequently, but that's how well these trails were laid in because they are on these natural paths. It's, it's yeah. the best navigable way through that area. and And, you know, we take it for granted and you cruise right across it and you don't even think of, You know, glancing left and right, well, if this was anywhere else, how much crappier would this walk be? And I know it's not always easy, and there's oftentimes it's very steep or whatnot, but it's still the best line available based on the conditions at hand. But designing that, it's
2: art and science at a really high level. Well, think about building these things back in the day, like with the Crawfords and Edmond's Path and all these things. No you know electronic recon or anything just like Mm -hmm. incredible yeah and we've talked about
1: that before like the crawford path and the davis path which are sort of the two early paths how did they know what direction to follow and a lot of times they just went with sort of either in the drainage or they would follow ridge lines and obviously like it worked out but like how did they know when to sort of cut it and go left, you know, because there's a couple of sections of, like, the Davis Path where they do have some switchbacks there. And you got to wonder, like, were those part of the original trail or were they just sort of following, like, deer paths or or did they know something about the land from a technique perspective that, that told them to switch it off? I don't know.
2: Yeah, well, I'm sure they went up multiple times. That's <laughs> probably repetition. Yeah. and There's yeah.
3: one thing. One thing different about the trails here that, that might have a... It's like the trails here are largely recreational. And the way that's been described to me is that in, in other areas of the world, some of these trails are like ancient trade routes... They were navigated by animals, laden animals, people with carts, everything else. So they've got Hmm. a different kind of a flavor. So when we exceed some of these grades and slopes and pitches and stuff, a lot of this is simply because we wanted to go, you know, to this hilltop and that hilltop and this other hilltop. But none of us were carrying water to and from a village or none of us were taking our animals to market or anything like that. So some of our trails around here are kind of zany when compared to something that was actually a trade route. Um, But again, I. I only know the barest edge of all of this, but there are some people that are true masters at the stonework, the 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 water runoff, the trail construction. There's a lot that goes into it, way more than as a hiker you really appreciate. And
2: we should do some research about that, Mike. You know, differentiate between the recreational and the older paths, like uh, the Mount Jacora. You know, that used to be a toll road for commerce and things like right. that that'd be really interesting to look into.
1: Yeah. yeah. And Mark, if you have any connections with people that are experts on this, because the other thing too, that we don't talk about, and I don't know if there's anything to it, but were Native Americans building any paths up here back in the, you know, the even more ancient times. Like, I don't know how much evidence there is of Native American travel this far North and it's pretty far away from sort of waterways. So I don't know, but that could also be something that you know, happened where there was already some established trails through this area that that early trail builders were able to to jump on. I've never really read anything about that, but I'd be curious. Sounds good. So, um, so the transitioning out of the trail building segment. So we'll do more details on this, and I'll include in the show links the um the the PDF that's like 180 pages if people want to geek out on it.
0: Let's dive into some White Mountains history, shall we? We
1: wanted to do a a quick segment about Joe Dodge, who is, it's sort of a good segue because, you know, he was an early trail builder. But I think the way that I think of Joe Dodge is, first and foremost, he was probably like the first search and rescue person in the whites, Um you know, and obviously there was a lot of rescues going on before him. He, he his sort of years of operation were like the mid nineteen twenties up until the the mid nineteen fifties. But he generally was um, the main search and rescue guy around the Pinkham Notch and, and White Mountain area. So, I think Jamie or Stomp, you had said that you wanted to do a segment on him. So we we pulled up a little little info on him. So I think by way of background. If you go to Pinkham Notch, there is Joe Dodge Lodge, which is like the the AMC lodge that is at Pinkham Notch that you can stay over. And the connection there is that Joe Dodge, as a young man, moved from, I think he was from Manchester, Mass. He moved up to Pinkham Notch and was working, I think, for the AMC as a seasonal employee, had decided that he was going to stay year-round in Pinkham Notch. To do surveying for some of the um, the forestry companies that were basically looking to audit, you know, how much available um, land or trees there were for for harvesting in the area, and eventually, what ended up happening is that he became so connected to the area he got married to a lady from cambridge i don't know what the hell she thought about when she married him and had to move up here but he was the first person to stay year round in pinkham notch and eventually he got called on by the amc hut committee because there was an existing hut system already in place by the time he had moved up here there was four huts i believe and he was asked basically to maintain and be the hut master for the area so he maintained all the early huts, and then I believe Zealand in Gillhead, I think he was responsible for locating those those locations for the huts. I don't know what the hell he was thinking putting them there because it must have been pretty deep in the woods, but <laughs> um, he then oversaw the, building, the rebuilding of the existing hut system and then the building of the new huts over the course of like, you know, 30 years of him being involved as the AMC Hutmaster. Eventually, he also went on to um, help build and start the Mount Washington Weather Observatory. So this guy had his hand on everything.
2: And he he was the first to bring in uh, radio stuff, you know, for communication. Yep. Early radio.
3: Yeah, he had worked on radios in in the military. Right. And, and, yeah, he incorporated that into... How he did
2: things up here, neat guy, yeah. a legend. And I read a
1: little thing about the radio. Um, he he did a thing where um, he would, for, for, for at his cost, like the people coming in on ships. I think he would, but maybe this might have been before he was up and up north. But he would. Um, take whatever the signals were from the people on the ships and like basically pass the messages on to their wives and family members that they were they were on their way, which was pretty cool. Wow.
3: Yeah, I, b- I bumped into that myself. I, I in, in a little bit, it was a few years back, but I ran into something about him and he, it seems that he had a, an interesting relationship with Fish and Game, which was very fledgling at the time. I mean, Fish and Game, I, I don't think, they really got officially going until 1950 or so, if, if I remember right, uh, here in New Hampshire. Right. But, uh, and, and uh, you know, of course, uh, he was known to be foul-mouthed and, you know, kind of abrupt and everything like that. But, but yes. I, 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 I saw some quotes, pretty disparaging remarks about what he called the fish police. And <laughs> I, fish cops? Yeah, the fish cops. <laughs> and, it, you know, it, it seemed that he, you know, was not as enamored you know, with, with them and there. And it's interesting because they're the ones who are now, you know, have the proponency for search and rescue in New Hampshire. Sure, but sure. I'd be interested in hearing from some of like our long time fish and game people, you know, like some, like some of the 30 year people or just anybody that has any, you know, any overlap and I probably not current overlap, you know, they probably didn't work with him, but just what that, what yeah, that right. time was like, you know, or why there were these perceived frictions between him and the fish police or lack of respect. Yeah, that, that just yeah.
1: seemed to be just from the vignettes that I saw and I got a quote that you guys will appreciate so he was asking about um, what his rescue technique was uh, and this was a quote in the news so, so he's like and I love this because this is like the most 19, like forties and 50s quote ever so he's like my theory is that if some damn goofer we got to bring that word back some goofer um, is lost you should figure what any sensible person would do and then look in the opposite direction <laughs> So he's basically like, use common sense and then do what the opposite of common sense tells you. Right. So, which is pretty good. But, um, oh, and I also, um, one thing I missed here is that he, he, they built Greenleaf. So it looks like they did Greenleaf, Gillhead, and um, Zealand. So they did the ones that connect through the the Pemi, which is pretty impressive. Amazing.
3: Yeah, it's a pretty interesting. Uh, I don't I don't know a lot about him. It seems like definitely one of these larger than life personality type characters. But right. it, it, one of the things that um, fascinated me was that it, there was a business model to it all, and I was unaware of that. This is another being being new to New Hampshire and new to the Whites in a relative sense. That like he increased the flow of traffic through the huts to such a degree that it increased the revenue very very substantially. So. You know, and I and I realize that he did a lot for conservation, and I'm not I'm not this I'm not saying any of this in a negative fashion. I'm just saying that there there was a commercial aspect to this undertaking also, and he did drive revenue and and you know, facilitate however you want to put it, facilitated guest services or facilitated throughput as far as stays or you know I, I don't quite know that the lingo of, of you know, how we would approach this, but just the fact that more people came, more people stayed in the huts, more people clearly got to see and enjoy the area. But based on his efforts and based on the, his expansion of the hut system and his expansion of the, the, he also expanded the services that they offered.
1: So, yeah. Yeah. And the, you know, what's amazing too, is when you look at the timeline. So from, let me see here. So it looks like, From 1929 through 1931, he spent those three years building Greenleaf, Galehead, and Zealand Falls. He then pivoted immediately in 1932 to build the Mount Washington Observatory. So like all the (laughs) existing infrastructure that we think of as sort of like the the sort of linchpins of the hot system and the White Mountains, that was all put up in five years by this guy. This, and that's another
3: thing that struck me was the timeline. This is the middle of the Great Depression. So, you know, like in, 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 other, in other areas, like I'm familiar with this, the Civilian Conservation Corps work. They did a lot of the parks and things in Pennsylvania. A lot of the little small dams and little state park areas and things like that were projects that were done by the Civilian Conservation Corps at the time to keep people working. And they still, they're still there today. They're, they're still existing today and everything like that. But that is another interesting layer to all of this is that how um, you know through grants and other mechanisms that they were doing this work up here. And, and um, I did see a quote where he, he really felt that his contribution, his greater contribution to humanity was in the observatory mm-hmm. rather than the huts, right. which is really interesting. But it's fascinating that one person just basically worked so hard and did so much that that part amazes me just the amount of of output this is all handwork mountains yeah Yeah. this is this is all with donkeys and and with with human labor and with
1: um i think they did have a little bit of mechanized stuff but not a lot incredible yeah yeah it wasn't like they were just using helicopters to fly things in. like it was an army and i i think a lot of the connection to sort of the funding for this and the, the tourism does come back to sort of the academic and probably the more elite class people that were living down in like Boston and I'm sure New York and Connecticut and they you know they made their decision to sort of make their sort of summer playground the White Mountains in New Hampshire and I think a lot of those those people brought a lot of money into this and invested but it, they certainly picked a guy that was capable of getting things done. And that's that's a rare thing. You know, you, you work with hundreds of people over the course of your life and there's very few people that have such a, a bias towards action and this guy, I mean, it's just crazy to think about, like, what he accomplished. And you also don't think about, like, the the, the lack of comfort compared to the way we live mm-hmm. right now, the way this guy. Like, he would take showers in in Pinkham Notch when he originally got up there. He would take showers by rubbing snow all over his body. Right.
3: <laughs> yeah, just keeping so. the crews going. I mean, that, you know, anybody who's managed just even, you know, a, a small amount of work crew type of work and, you know, just keeping you know keeping the the people the materials the work going and you know and the just the inflow and outflow of of of, of all all of everything you need it's just a phenomenal amount of work and to, yeah to think he was scratching it out with hand notes and with messengers and with you know well we we do know he did have radio but like it yeah. you know it just it, it just a, a level of i agree a level of output that just
1: just fascinates yeah and he would um I'm just reading right here, like he would go 20 miles down, like 10 miles down to Gorham and then 10 miles back and like carry like 80 or 100 pounds back on his skis. And then also he used his radio connection when he got bored up in Pinkham. He was like, I got to get married. So somehow he was able to connect to Boston to to, get a message to my whatever girlfriend or or the girl that I like. Uh, I'd like to get married. Yeah, his. uh yeah, isn't that the word exactly? Back then? Whoever he was, whoever he was courting, is that what they did back then? Courting. <laughs> right. So yeah, he was able to get a, a wife over the over the radio.
3: That's a true man Lever- back then. leveraging technology. You know, <laughs> right. it's, it's it's not a dating app, but it's similar. Today it would have been TikTok.
1: <laughs> <Right>? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So. Anyway, but oh. good stuff. So quite a character, and uh, you know, we I like these history segments. But this guy Joe Dodge, I'm, I, there's a book about his life that um, I'll link in the show notes, and it, it's pretty interesting. But Stomp, I think we're at two hours here, so we're gonna bail on the on the search and rescue stuff, and we'll talk about snowmobile stuff next week. But anything uh, before we wrap up?
2: How about your yoga? Do you want to plug that at all before we wrap up, or just let it go? Uh,
3: I mean. Honestly, I live, yoga has helped me immensely and breath work and just being present in your body is, I recommend it to anybody and everybody. And I think the world would be a better place if we all just did that. But, um, there's a, a good studio, um, uh, in Lincoln, live a little fitness and, um, just a small local place and they help a lot of people and a really good atmosphere. And that's another one of those things where I just, I looked for good people doing good things and they didn't
1: disappoint.
2: I think you should start yoga, Mike.
1: Me? I need to.
2: I'm really like not should? flexible. <laughs> yeah,
1: I need to I need to like and I, so for me I I feel like the running for me sort of gives me my zen like that's my like hour in the morning to sort of get in my head and I feel sort of like I've reset for the day, but I'm assuming yoga would do something similar. But I do need to like work on my uh, flexibility a little bit, so we'll see. Nobody wants to see me in yoga pants. I tell you that.
3: I tell you, it's 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 not about it's not about making your body into a shape just to get to a certain place. It's just about working from where you're at. But every every little bit of of just getting a little bit of the tension out it is extremely useful. Mm. And 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 um, I've got a lot of injuries, honestly, and and my injuries are much less debilitating because of the stretching yeah and and my sure. and my mental stuff is way 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 better because of the breath awareness and and the body work
1: yeah Right. Yeah, I got to get more zen. I'm more like I'm more of a goal oriented person. Like that's the one thing that's like a turn off for me for yoga. It's like I don't want to be in the moment. I want to be like, all right, I got to run five miles today. Let's bang it out. And now I feel like I accomplished something. You know so what I if, mean? If like if I'm you're like, a challenge based
3: <laughs> yeah. person, that's that's your challenge. Yeah. There's your new challenge. Can you just be here?
0: Uh, you want to you want to yeah. do
3: something hard? Yeah, you, I mean, hey, I'm I'm just speaking as a former Green Beret. Speaking as someone yeah. who. You know, I'm very familiar with goal-driven people or action-oriented people. I'm familiar with Jamie's sensation of being unable to sit in the parking lot. I'm just saying, the thing that you feel is the hardest thing for you to do is the thing that probably deserves your attention. And if you really want a challenge, take this trip, friend.
1: (laughs) That's a good point. That is a good point. It
3: won't disappoint.
1: Sort of the yoga thing has been... uh circling around for a while. So maybe I'll, I'll try to find my Zen. Hey, here's the thing.
3: It, it, it happens little by little. So in other words, like you don't have to just sit still all alone in a white room for a day right now. Like you, know, you can go from your current level of activity, both mental and physical, and you can just begin to explore that edge. In other words, like it doesn't, it doesn't take a major shift. Yeah. It, it just takes a little bit of attention. If that, if that helps take the bite off a little bit.
1: Yeah, yeah. You know what I do need to do though is even without the yoga, and I know Stomp's going to go to bed here, so I'll shut up, but... um, No, I'm good. I cannot touch my toes, so I've done a a couple of times I've done that sort of challenge about like touch your toes challenge and I focus for like three or four weeks of like stretching so I could actually touch my toes. Maybe I'll at least do that.
3: Oh, You never know where it can go, but really though, (laughs) here's the thing is you're not inflicting it on yourself. It's a whole different approach. You're, you're moving into it as your body allows. And that's a very, very interesting trip to take. Mm. So it, it's not like you're stretching your muscle like you're stretching a rubber band. You're finding that edge and waiting for the muscle to relax and then moving into the space you created. Because if you try to just mm-hmm. yank it, it's going to reflexively tighten up. Yeah. So I'll you know, throw I'm, that tip I'm, out I'm there.
1: I'm going to be the worst yoga person ever. But Stomp, you look like you're going to die. So we're going to wrap <laughs> okay. up here. You a long day. <laughs> But, Mark, thank you so much. Yeah, and, thanks uh, thanks, thanks for having me. We will definitely
2: load up the show notes. Yeah. This has been a great chat. And we'll have you back again Two if you want. Two hours, Heck, yeah.
0: Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you want to learn more about the topics covered on today's show, please check out the show notes and safety information on slasherpodcast.com That's S-L-A-S-R podcast.com. You can also follow the show on Facebook and Instagram. We hope you'll join us next week for another great show. Until next time, on behalf of Mike and Stomp, get out there and crush some peaks. Now covered in scratches, blisters, and bug bites, Chris Staff wanted to complete his most challenging day hike
2: ever.
3: Fish and game officers say the hiker from Florida activated an emergency beacon yesterday morning. He was hiking along the Appalachian Trail when the weather started to get worse. Officials say the snow was piled up to three feet in some spots, and there was a wind chill of minus one degree.
1: And there's three words to describe this race. Do we all know what they are? Lieutenant James Neeland, New Hampshire Fishing Game. Lieutenant, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me. What are some of the most common mistakes you see people make when they're heading out on the trails to hike here in New Hampshire?
0: Seems to me the most common is being unprepared, and I think if they just simply visited uh, hikesafe.com and got a list of the ten essential items and had those in their packs, they probably would have no need to ever call us at all.